And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. On this rotating globe, wherever you are, all over the planet, in 190-some countries, listening to us on the other side of midnight. Welcome, one. Welcome, all. Well, tonight we're going to embark on another voyage into the unknown, the unknown being why, when there's all kinds of circumstantial evidence that there is an extraordinary glass dome, an ancient, ancient, tattered, battered, eroded, almost in some places, um, uh, doily-like, lace-like remnants of an extraordinary uh, construction over this 30-mile-wide crater on Mars. And all of the evidence is coming in from the only source we have, which is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Why does NASA continue to remain totally, totally silent? And there's another mystery. You heard that the helicopter now might fly on Monday. We're going to get into both of those things. But before we do that, let me start at the top of the news. Um, Prince Philip was uh, laid to rest today. They had his, his funeral, which went several hours. That's item number one in Radio with Pictures. In my news items tonight, the reason I'm making a kind of a deal uh, about Prince Philip, someone said to me, what the heck does Prince Philip have to do with space? Which, of course, illustrates how narrow their perspective is, because this program covers a lot more than space. And it is my firm conviction, it has been for decades, that what we're doing, what we're finding in space is directly applicable to life here on Earth and vice versa. There is an interplay of politics and egos and agendas and duplicity and all the usual human frailties involving all of these realms. So why am I kind of focusing on Prince Philip? Well, first of all, he represented, as I said last week, uh, dying at the age of 99, just shy of 100 years, a century He represents a link between what's going on at present and what went on many, 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 many decades ago. He he was the sole surviving uh, representative of an era which has passed. And many of us will say, you know, good riddance. The other reason is that representing, as he did, almost the patriarch of the royal family, the you know, the royal family of the head of the British Empire, what used to be, you know, ruling planet Earth, Um, the city of London, all the economics associated with central banks and all of that huge Michigas. He also had this singular intriguing interest in UFOs. And the reason I bring that up is because everyone... When they look at various leaders, various political leaders or religious or cultural or whatever, we always seem to imbue these people with some kind of, uh, I won't say superhuman, but some extraordinary apart from humanity power to do things, to make change, to influence public opinion, to direct this, the stream of history in ways that, frankly, I don't think they have. I mean, I've been watching very closely. I mean, there's a lot of people in this audience who are followers, were and still are, of uh, Donald Trump. 
Donald Trump had as the chief executive of the United States of America, as he exemplified in so many different directions, this extraordinary power of the executive written into the Constitution. I mean, he he made some of these really outrageous claims that presidents can do anything. No, they can't do anything, but they can sure do a hell of a lot. The one thing Donald Trump did not do, even though it was served up to him on a silver platter, which would have immortalized in an extraordinarily positive way his name in history. And is there anything more important to Donald Trump than his name, his reputation, his public persona, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, uh, That was the rhetorical question. We served up to him through a back channel, so I know he got it and he was able to look at it. The literal foundations for carving out his name in 50-foot high Hollywood sign-type lights. All he had to do as the president of the United States was call up his head of NASA and order him, because the head of NASA serves at the pleasure of the president in the executive branch, order him to get to the White House in 30 minutes with the photographs of all the stuff on the moon and Mars that NASA has been cataloging for the last half century, and he never did it. He never discussed in practical three-dimensional terms the whole extraordinarily confusing subject of UFOs. In fact, he redacted certain portions of the CIA files on the assassination of John Kennedy, which tells me, which again harkens back to Prince Philip, regardless of the apparent power of either kings or queens or princes or presidents, obviously are limits. Something is limiting the exercise of this power and directing it in certain directions, certain channels, and misdirecting it from others. I mean, Trump had an extraordinary, within his grasp, opportunity to make history like no president or no king or prince in the last several thousand years has made history, and he did not take the opportunity. And the question must be raised, why not? Which is why I have item number one, Prince Philip's funeral. Because with the death of Prince Philip and the death of an era, maybe we are transitioning into another time where whatever forces there are behind the princes and kings of planet Earth, maybe their agenda is changing, which takes us to item number two. Remember, you go to the other side of midnight.com for those of you who are new to the program. And you click on um, tonight's banner, which says very uh, rather, um, shall we say, mysteriously, why is NASA still hiding Percy's astonishing discovery of an ancient Jezero glass dome with our imaging team for um, Saturday, April 17th. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page tonight. And under that banner, you will find fast links. Click on my items. That takes you to my part of radio with pictures. Uh, Item number two, right under the Prince Philip story, the Navy is releasing more video. 
And not only is the Navy doing this, but the Pentagon is confirming that this is official night vision U.S. Navy video of, you guessed it, more UFOs. Remember, in a few months, toward the end, I believe, of June now, we are supposed to receive a report from the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has been reviewing as part of the uh, NDAA that was signed into law uh, many, many months ago by, by President Trump. We're supposed to receive a briefing, a public briefing, on the status of the uh, UAP, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon that has been you know, chasing the um, Roosevelt and the Nimitz and playing cat and mouse with F-18s. And now we have another video. This one is really intriguing. And this was on Fox News, which I find very interesting given who the audience for Fox News is. It's literally night vision of the skies over New York showing three tetrahedral pyramidal UFOs flying in formation, and they're kind of phasing in and out. Uh, if you freeze frame the video, you'll see really amazing things. Now, in, in one phase, they look like equilateral triangles which, of course, are two-dimensional representations of three-dimensional tetrahedrons. In another phase, you know, a few frames later in the video, they phase to a solid, obviously three-dimensional tetrahedron floating in the sky. Why is this important? Because, I mean, come on, folks. If UFOs are trying at some level to illustrate the background physics of the reality in which we inhabit, the physics of how they fly, the physics of how they cross interstellar distances that are unimaginable to, excuse me, most terrestrial minds, then what better form than to show up as tetrahedrons, which is supposed to get people intrigued with, well, how do tetrahedrons, you know, get involved in all of this? And for those of you who've been following our work for many, many decades, you know exactly what the answer is. Isn't it interesting? that the latest, again, Pentagon-confirmed unidentified aerial phenomenon, and the unidentified is said definitely tongue-in-cheek, should take the form not of saucers, not of little glowing lights, but of full-blown three-dimensional pyramids, and not just any pyramids, but tetrahedral pyramids. And as Church Lady would say on Saturday Night Live, isn't that special? So moving on, um, this is a very important week. A whole bunch of anniversaries kind of collided this week. It's the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's first modern human flight around the Earth in, uh, in his spacecraft. And it is also the 40th anniversary, again, within a day or two, of the launch of the first space shuttle from Cape Canaveral, and I was there. I was a uh, consultant to, at that time, CNN, and I wound up doing uh, stand-up stuff on air with my friend and mentor, Kevin Sanders, who was the CNN science editor, um, on the first flight of Columbia, and NASA's put out, by the way, they fixed NASA television. Last weekend, they finally, after two months, of bizarreness and weirdness and strangeness and, you know, other other things in this, 
they finally fixed NASA TV. So if you go to the NASA um, uh, menu on your satellite or cable channel and you get NASA TV, what you see is titles of various programs actually fits now various programs. It's all back in sync. Well, they're running this really amazing documentary, which was very well done, very nicely produced, lots of amazing videos, some of which I'd never seen, um, on the 40 years of the space shuttle program, starting with the launch of the uh, first space shuttle, uh, which was on April, I think it was April 11th, um, which was last Sunday, but as you know, we did not have a program live last Sunday because we had weird, weird, weird computer problems. Anyway, um, that anniversary, which marks the beginning of the democratization of space, is very important for a whole bunch of reasons, which takes us to item number four, because this is a story that comes out of uh, uh, Moscow very elegant analysis of what's happened to the Russian space program in comparison to the U.S. space program. And what's really intriguing is that while the Russian program has remained centralized with a central bureau of space flight, et cetera, Roscosmos, you know, which runs everything, um, the U.S. program is has divided in very interesting and elegant ways. We have the official U.S. program. NASA, and in particular, right now we're talking about the unmanned Perseverance rover and some of the amazing things that you're going to be seeing tonight that confirm again they've made the most extraordinary discovery, and they're not talking about it. I mean, there's so many different lines of evidence as to what they found, and they're not saying a word, not a peep, not a whisper. In fact, normally during these missions, uh, I hang out on you know, like a lurker on some of these inside blogs and chat rooms or whatever that, you know, NASA people love to talk like everybody else loves to talk. And so since they can't say anything publicly, they go to these chat rooms and they leak stuff behind the scenes procedures. They leak really interesting images. They leak techniques for how to make the images better. There's all kinds of leaking that goes on behind the scenes during all normal NASA missions. The Perseverance mission is not normal because there literally are no leaks. Nothing has been coming out of JPL as to what really happened with Ingenuity, why it was delayed again and again and again. And I'm not too certain about Monday. You know, something could come up. We'll get into that when we get into the rest of the program this morning. But there's been no leaks, which in and of itself is really bizarre because people love to talk. And in this case, nobody's talking, which again raises my conspiracy uh, spidey sense that says <clears throat> they're not talking because they've been told not to talk and the consequences of talking are not going to be pretty. And so nobody is talking, which means they're hiding something. And of course, we know what they're hiding. They're hiding the discovery of this extraordinary ancient glass dome over a crater in the northern hemisphere, just down from the tip of Sirtis Major, the oldest known feature ever seen on Mars. It was seen by Cassini back in the uh, late 1600s. So this has been the feature that kind of 
represented the planet Mars in lore and art and fiction and in astronomical circles. Well, in this unique place, at the edge of this unique feature, featured as Mars down through history of astronomy, nobody's talking about what they have found. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's uh, we'll get into that during the course of the morning. But this item number four, this view of what the Russians are doing versus what the U.S. is doing, what the U.S. is doing is what every free society has to do, which is to release the constraints so that no one agency controls all information. The only reason tonight that we don't know what's really on Mars or on the moon or anywhere else because it's all been funneled through one government agency, NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, founded by President Eisenhower, a general as a simulcrum, as a kind of um, um, digital vaporware uh, charade of a civilian space agency when actually anything really, really important that NASA discovered relating to who and what's out there it's locked up in national security. And there's no clearer example than the space agency that's supposed to go and find life out there. That's what every American thinks NASA's supposed to be doing is finding evidence of life. They say it in all their ads. They say it in all their TV programs. They say it constantly when they do interviews. But it's, as I said in the monuments, you know, jam yesterday, jam tomorrow, but never jam today. They've got a live one. They've got an amazing discovery right in front of them, and the only way we know that they're actually taking it seriously is they're taking zillions of pictures of things that have never been done before in any previous NASA mission, either on the moon or on Mars, on the surface. Which moves us from item number four, which is the contrast between a top-down control government program to explore space. And this guy, Elon Musk, who has Mars set in his sights, who is building a rocket and a spacecraft to go on the rocket, which is going to take someday an awful lot of people to the planet Mars, who obviously will not be able to be controlled. They will talk. They will leak. They will use their iPhones. They will use their satellite links. They will... There's no way at that point that what's up there can be kept secret. So isn't it interesting that out of the three main competitors as part of Project Artemis, we're now on item number five, NASA threw a cat among the pigeons yesterday by picking Elon Musk and SpaceX to build the lander that will bring humans back to the moon onto the surface and back to Earth, like the lunar module, except much, 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 much grander. Because, of course, by picking for the contract to land Artemis astronauts on the moon, by picking Musk, what NASA has done is to pick, basically, Musk Starship, which, by the way, has been regularly blowing up in Texas as they've been trying to land this big sucker. They had almost success the last time except after the landing uh it blew up because of a methane leak well they're going to try again i think in a couple weeks to do uh another flight test they've leaped from starship number 11 these are 
you know, kind of numbers for test modules, test spaceships, test test articles, they call them, to 15. And Musk is saying that there have been so many improvements now that the next one, number 15, is going to successfully fly up, hover, and then fly back down and land on the pad where it left. Starship number 20 is supposed to be the first Starship mission into orbit, Earth orbit, unmanned, but up into orbit, around the Earth several times, then back down, landing tail first on the pad in Texas. July 1st, two or three days before, and things slip, you know, with Musk. So it probably is going to slip to July 4th, which from that classic line, Independence Day, is not just our independence, it's our independence to stay alive. Because space, as you know, in my view of history, is the only way the human race is going to stay alive and thrive, fend and flourish, and do all the things that humans should be doing that we're not doing now because we're confined to one tiny speck of dust and we're fighting over the specks. We need to lift our sights. We need a better vision. We need NASA or someone to admit somebody out there before us built amazing things on the moon and even more amazing things on Mars. And if nobody else is going to tell the American people and the world the truth, is it possible that Elon Musk is going to be the guy? Why did they pick him? Remember, Bezos, who I think has more money than Musk, and a newspaper to boot, and Amazon, and a whole bunch of other things, I really, really, really wanted to get this contract, not because of the money, but because of the the mission. He didn't get the contract. He didn't get the, you know, the sword on the shoulder, the knighthood of being the guy who leads humanity toward the stars. That's a guy named Elon Musk, who in Werner von Braun's one novel is the namesake of the leader of the Martian colony in von Braun's novelization of his Mars project. Can you make this stuff? Or maybe somebody is. Who knows? Item number six. Um, As I said at the top of the show, NASA is going to try again, they're telling us, uh, Monday. And so if you want to know what the schedule is, it's going to be on NASA television, it's going to be on YouTube, it's going to be on various apps, on Twitter. There's going to be a full-court press of flying little ingenuity for the first time on Mars. What has been the reason for the delay? Well, if you look at item number seven... I think this is what it is. Number seven is a comparative shot I put together. <clears throat> the image on the left is a shot from one of our U-2 missions at about 70, 73,000 feet above the planet. <clears throat> the image on the right is from Perseverance, looking toward the west. The brightness at the top of the uh, frame is the setting sun. Notice the sky is blue. Notice the haze in front of the distant crater, Rim of Jezero, is blue. Notice that the blue seems to match the blue of the Earth's atmosphere seen from 70,000 feet, except 
above the band of blue, which is the breathable air you and I are enjoying right now, is black. The blackness of the lack of atmosphere above 70,000 feet. Now, we're told over and over and over and over again that the Martian atmosphere that NASA and JPL and all their myriad scientists and engineers have been working with ever since the first Mariner for flyby back in 1965, that the Martian atmosphere at the surface is so super thin, it's one one thousandths of the atmosphere we're currently breathing and thereby hangs a tail. Because if, when they were doing the run-up tests for Ingenuity, if in fact all of their modeling, all their vacuum tank tests, all their, you know, they put together like 5,000 little computer fans to represent the breezes that would blow at 100,000 feet that might, you know, move the helicopter off kilter when it's spinning on its own autonomous computer-controlled flight plan, monitoring its motions 500 times per second. So there's a feedback loop, and it corrects for any, you know, miscalculations or puffs of wind. I mean, the puff of wind at 100,000 feet sounds to me absurd. But that's what they were, have been telling us. Just suppose, I'm just going to throw this out there, and we've got about four minutes till the bottom of the hour. Just suppose that in their run-up tests, after they dropped little ingenuity on the landscape and then backed away to a safe distance and sent it commands to turn the rotors first at 50 RPM, and then because the atmosphere is ostensibly so thin, they have to spin those four-foot rotors at almost 3,000 RPM to produce enough lift under the Mars gravity of one-third that of Earth um, to basically have it hover and fly. Suppose during the rapids told the computer on board Perseverance saw something it didn't like and it cut short the test. Suppose what it did not like was the fact that it was measuring air resistance, air resistance that was much denser than the published models of the Martian atmosphere have been for over 50 years, since 1965. I mean, that would be a showstopper because the flight dynamics of a helicopter hovering at 100,000 feet over the Earth are totally, totally different than one hovering at 1,000 feet, you know, down in the soup, down in the atmosphere that we're breathing <clears throat> by a factor of 1,000. And just weirdly, They've been saying now that they fixed the software problem that caused the cessation of the test. They uploaded a totally new flight package to the Ingenuity computer, and they've now conducted a fast rotor spin-up to where they're saying that they had predictable, reliable, expected results. And so they've now commissioned this autonomous flight to begin sometime in the wee hours at 3.30 a Monday morning, 3.30 a.m. Why does that sound familiar? Oh, I know why. Because 3.30 a.m. is, of course, 3.3. You don't suspect that maybe NASA is doing all of this on a ritual calendar or clock 
that in fact it is it is constrained again like Prince Philip and Donald Trump and everyone at NASA constrained to a larger pressure, a larger force, a larger power, a larger set of instructions that nothing can be leaked and nothing can be changed until someone decides. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core And they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not deposit money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits, and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Netta, and Kentia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide.
Saturday night, April 17th, 2021, on the eve of, um, well, history. One way or another, we're going to be experiencing over the next few days, and maybe the next week, or maybe the next month, history. History on another world. History made, if not by NASA, remember, the Chinese are still orbiting the planet Mars. A place where, you know, it ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. Okay, you all know that I could listen to this forever because it's so evocative of so many things, both in my own past when I first heard it, which was driving in pre-dawn darkness across the panhandle of Florida, having just left Houston with a crew of two men on Apollo 16 walking on the moon. So this one's kind of burned into my memory. Long, long time. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. 
And I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a And welcome back to the other side of midnight. Yes, a long, long time, but the time may be growing shorter. Okay, all the gang is here. Uh, Ron Gerbron is here and Andrew Curry and Bob Harrison and Keith Morgan and Kinthea and Tim Saunders. Am I, am, am I missing anyone? If you're, if, if you're missing, speak up. No one's missing. Okay. All right, who wants to jump in and talk about ingenuity and the atmosphere of Mars and the flight of history commencing in about, what, 36 hours from now, give or take? Well, I have, uh, this is Timothy, I have one or two observations, Richard. I am speaking to you from early morning Turkey, and I'm in a bit of an echoey environment, so I apologize (laughs) to everybody. You sound like you're in the cathedral of, of Notre Dame. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the Hagia uh, Sophia. Or maybe in the Jezero Dome. See, Tim has actually secretly gone there to do the blueprint, so he's speaking to us from the dome. It's echoing very nicely. It's, it's all part of the immersion tactics I use. To, you know, when I get involved in a project, I really want to experience it. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Um, the... the, the Thing that pops out of my mind or pops out into my mind straight away when I look at the Ingenuity helicopter is the little tiny solar panel, pathetic little thing that looks like it's sort of screwed on top uh, of these, you know, whirling high-speed rotor blades. Now, presumably, there's going to be some vibration. I mean, you know, it will be beautifully engineered, I'm sure. But if you have two uh, rotor blades, okay, counter-rotating, they will create some form of vibration. And above you have this sort of like, uh, excuse me, but pathetic looking little solar panel array screwed on top, which is also covered in dust, which is also blocking the sun. First of all, it doesn't really look big enough for the job because if this, these rotor blades are spinning at, you know, high speed, and even if it's for only uh, one and a half minutes or whatever the, the predicted flight is, or you know, even 30-second flights or whatever that hops, it doesn't look man enough to, for the job for me. Uh, and secondly, as I say, it, it's, you know, it, it looks like it's beautifully engineered. It's been sent on the other side of our solar system, but it just looks very crude. What do you think? Um. Well, the size of the solar panel has bothered me from the beginning because you're almost twice as far away from the sun. The amount of solar energy goes down by the inverse square law, which means you're getting only one quarter as much solar energy per square inch or square foot or square meter as you do on Earth. Solar cells efficiencies are, you know, 25, 30 percent max. Um, you let the little things sit there for an entire day soaking up energy so you can power the cameras, the radios, the motors to spin the uh, props, those four-foot props, which is a lot. That's a lot of energy. 
I think it's 350 watts to run them. And they're talking now maximum 90 seconds of of flight time, probably conservatively maybe 30 seconds. It it just it it does the word kludge come to anybody else's mind except me and Tim? I'd need to look up and see what that means. What is that in English? <laughs> it means patched together from miscellaneous parts. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So unless they have a secret power source, which of course if we're dealing with a secret space agency which has access to hyperdimensional physics, et cetera, et cetera, package in that little, you know, four pound container, a power source that wouldn't need the sun at all, this whole thing would be like a like a, a Potemkin village or a false front Western town. And the solar panel is an excuse for not doing more publicly than once per day. But if it has a really onboard power source, and I don't mean nuclear, I'm talking torsion field physics here. Then again, remember my model that weeks ago, I said that Ingenuity's real mission is to scout for whatever perseverance was landed in Jezero crater to find and you're not going to do that with 90-second sorties, but you could do it if it's really independent, and this whole thing is a cover story to prevent the people, the public, the taxpayer, the world from knowing what they're really looking for at Jezero. Mm-hmm. The other thing which I think is, is worthy of note, I mean, is, is that the uh, perseverance itself may not have had the space to you know, contain a larger solar array, uh, but I don't really believe that because I mean, equally, that solar array could have been circular or square, and it could have been many times more, um, more square, you know, more area for the for virtually the same weight. The solar panels themselves don't weigh very much at all. Uh, I know it must be very weight sensitive, but let's just say you have three times more area of solar panels, then surely that's got to be a good trade-off. But I mean, you know, recently I was designing a, um, a floating helipad, believe it or not, for a particular client. And it was a conceptual study and also a sort of a feasibility and also cost estimation process. Now they wanted to land um, an AW139, which is a pretty big helicopter on this structure. And there are a lot of rules involved and there are a lot of um, safety mechanisms, firefighting and so on and so on. Um, but also they wanted to you know, reduce the amount of uh, generator runtime uh, on this structure. So, of course, you know, what can you do? You can do wave energy, but it doesn't really work. You can do wind energy. It doesn't really work with a helicopter landing in the vicinity. So it basically comes down to solar. So, of course... I maximize the amount of solar panels I could use, but still it comes way short of anything I, I need uh, to make it a, a self-sufficient entity. And, you know, I'm talking something with like a 25 meter, so what's that, you know, 75, 80 foot wide, 80 foot square, uh, 80 by 80, that is, uh, structure. So for me, solar panels is key. The, the area of solar panels is absolutely key to the mission if that is indeed what they're for. Have you ever heard the term window dressing? Yes. Remember how we were talking a couple of weeks ago, how just the, the design, I mean, you're, you're a designer, you're an elegant designer. The design Thank itself you. 
does not bespeak of the future. I mean, if, if Musk were designing this, it would be totally different. I mean, look at his space trip. Look at his spacesuits. Look at his cars. Look at his, his, his uh, you know, boring. Everything Musk does is not only functionally, engineeringly brilliant. It also looks absolutely out of this world. It's, it's sexy. It's inviting. It's a conversation that Andrew and I've had. It, it makes you want to know more, want to participate, to be exactly. part of the story. This little helicopter, which frankly is – that cartoon we have at the top of the uh, homepage kind of says it. It's like, it's like a fish out of water. It just – there's something about it that's bothered me from the beginning, and it is because it, it does not – it's not elegant. That's the word I'm well, missing. Well, the other thing is that the, the rotor blades are quite sexy looking. I think yes, you know, they, they are. are. They're the sexiest they're thing on engineered. It. Yeah, and also the legs, the landing legs. Those are the, probably the two most sexy looking things <laughs> on, the, on, on the thing itself. But the, Why not make the box of electronics a teardrop? Why not make it so it was elegant? It's a box covered with mylar. Yeah, I mean, th- those are good questions. But I mean, I guess... Because you know, then it would have looked like a finished product instead of a, an experiment. I think they wanted it to look like a garage-level experiment. Well, they keep saying over and over again, and sorry, Tim, we keep interrupting, but they keep saying over and over sorry. again, it has no utility, it has no scientific instruments. Well, that's NASA lying, and I'll tell you exactly why they're lying. Because <clears throat> Perseverance has 19 or 20 or 20, I forget the number, of cameras, which are all classified as scientific instruments. Ingenuity carries two cameras, a black and white camera, which is going to be part of its terrain navigation, and a color camera, incredibly high resolution, HD, etc., looking slant-wise down, to photograph the landscape and Percy and all that. And they're not classifying the cameras and ingenuity as scientific experiments because I think it's all propaganda. They don't want anyone to think this little thing will have any utility other than a quote demo. Can we talk one, about the cameras real po- quick? Yeah, sure. I'd like to talk about the cameras. Yeah, I worked for ABC News 30 years. All I did was white balance, black balance cameras and fix them to component level. When you white balance a camera in 6,500 Kelvin, which is daylight on this planet, and then you send that to another planet or you send it to a disco with different colored lights, the lighting is going to look different than what you balanced it in. And they're not going to put automatic white balancing on cameras when they want to see the true color of another planet based on what they set in 6,500 Kelvin on this planet. All right. So why do you see a blue sky when you get there? Because it has a blue sky. (laughs) We were told that this planet, Mars had an atmosphere and we were told that it had rivers and lakes 450,000 years ago. And you didn't need a spacesuit 450,000 years ago, according to these tablets that are six to 7,000 years old. So NASA is telling us BS about the color of that planet. It is not red. The sky is not red. And it's not reversed that of the Earth. When the sun goes down, it turns blue. It's blue all the time. So 
I want to know why they're telling us a lie about the color of the sky. Anybody got an answer? I was going to say, anybody want to pick okay. that up? Yeah, because they don't want it inviting. They don't want the old traditions of Barsoom ah. and all the old ancient, not ancient, all the old scientific, uh, I'm sorry, sci fi ideas. Well, root. some of them are truly, truly ancient, Andrew. Come yeah. On, you know. but, but what I mean is that they don't want those those beautiful ideas, that, that romance of space travel and of discovery to take root in people. We heard Holger last week say, oh, in Germany, you know, it's not really encouraged because, you know, the old rockets and the uh, and the Nazis and all that. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they are discouraging it. They are making you go, ah, whatever. So this little funny little dragonfly barely – looks boring. But you know, on that topic, guys, remember Rosetta's lander, the Philae lander, wasn't the most, you know, beautiful looking thing either. Maybe these space agencies, that was from ESSA, right? But maybe yes. these space agencies, they, maybe they don't have any imagination. I mean, Musk is, is a marketeering guy. He's going to make it flashy and sexy because he wants to sell it. And maybe he's, maybe this is a dry run before they send in the real horses like Elon Musk to really carry the chariot. Well, the fact that they picked him, you know, it's the Casablanca line out of all the gin joints, because there were screams through the space community of horror that they picked Musk. Why is why is Musk the guy they love to hate? Because he's the only one really doing anything. Is that why they love to hate him? But I'm so glad because remember, I predicted on the show weeks and weeks ago that he would be the guy that would get the contract. That means our spaceships going to and from the moon and to and from Mars are going to, Andrew, look like spaceships look, should look like. Like the yeah. 1950s, Tom yeah. Corbett, Polaris. Yep. Yeah, well, like the poster. Remember the poster you brought on? Was it one of our earliest Perseverance shows or was it a moon show? But it was a, it was his rocket on the moon, and it was done in literally the Bonstell bon um, style, and it was extraordinary. So, yeah, you're totally right. It's, it's, they're Cadillacs. Beautiful. Hmm. Gorgeous. Okay, I want to get back to this atmosphere thing because to me, the only way we're going to know what the atmosphere of Mars is, is if you somehow can test it. And the only way to test it is to pit engineering against the reality of the environment. And the only way to test that is if we had an accurate count of how many RPM it takes for little ingenuity to lift off. My thinking is the reason that the folks at NASA, JPL, shut everything down for uh, a week is because when they did the spin-up test, they found it almost wanted to lift off not at 2,400 RPM, but at like at 500 RPM, which, of course, is the spin of blades of helicopters here on Earth. And by the way, Tim, in terms of vibration and shaking, a coaxial, meaning two rotors, right on the same axis spinning in opposite directions is much more stable and much more controllable than helicopters we see with the, you know, the tail fin, the tail rotor in the back. That's clunky. That's the clunky. No, I, I understand that. It's the same in the marine business as well. You have duoprop and they're far more stable when they're running. But mm. My point is when you change the attitude, when you change the thrust line, for example, then you're pushing those two blades or two, uh, against whatever you're pushing it against, presumably the atmosphere. And therefore, that will in itself cause some 
some turbulence, and that turbulence transmits into vibration. That, that's the vibration I'm talking about, not just the shaking mm. of a box on, on the surface of Mars. Well, that's why you have a computer. By the way, the computer that's flying in Ingenuity, we're told, is, is state-of-the-art, as opposed to everything else NASA flies, which has decades of pedigree. They literally have put the best computer able to process data at an extraordinary rate uh, compared to anything else that you'd find off on the market. <clears throat> so they're doing controls at 500 cycles per second for feedback. So I think the little thing is going to fly. The question is, will we ever know in what kind of an atmosphere it's flying? Because again, I go back to picture number seven. You cannot beat those two pictures. One is at 70,000 feet over the earth. The sky is pitch black. The other is on Mars where the atmosphere is supposed to be thinner than at 100,000 feet and it's brilliantly daylit blue. How can you reconcile those two images? Mm-hmm. I, I know you're making a segue, but I do want to just go in very quickly with one point that you were saying earlier that the RPM, of these rotor blades, is something in the region of what was it, 3,000 RPM you were mentioning? No, the, they say it will lift off at above 2,500. Okay, but it's not the same as on Earth between 450, 500 RPM like a normal home. Exactly. But the point is that on Earth, the tail rotor blades on Earth, on helicopters, is also usually between 2,500 and 3,000 RPM. So it's not rocket science what they're doing. It's just different. um, It's the main rotors which are spinning faster as Mm. opposed to the tail rotors. There are no tail rotors. I have to say one more thing I'm going to throw on the table is if... Again, I'm not a NASA scientist, but if I was going to approach this problem, you know, with a view to create a solution at the beginning of this, and I, it is not 100% uh, in the bag what density the atmosphere is on Mars, then I think I would propose, at least in the early conceptual stage, a variable pitch uh, helicopter, a rotor blade with a variable pitch, because it could be to the point where if, if the atmosphere is thicker than they believe it is, and they've made this beautiful carbon fiber uh, rotor blade system, and the pitch is too great for the atmosphere, it may be that it can never spin up to get anything like the RPM they need. Mm. So that could be interesting. I think I read, and there are, there are links in that um, uh, news item to the technical... Uh, briefing documents on ingenuity. I do believe the rotors are variable pitch. I haven't had a chance to check, but I do believe I heard that said at one of these very rare press conferences where they have talked about the helicopter. I think okay. that's true. Okay. okay. Let me let me move on because I want to talk about the dome. Because the second mystery that we want to tackle this morning for the next couple hours is why is NASA so incredibly resistant to admit there is a dome. Not only NASA, but NASA acolytes. Um, I approached someone this week, uh, rather straightforwardly, and challenged them to do a mosaic of the all-sky mass cam images that NASA took, JPL took, of the dome from the inside from Percy, suddenly without warning uh, a couple weeks ago. And they've now repeated it. They've done a second full-sky mosaic. All I'd asked this individual to do was to put them together. This is someone who does this for a living. Put them together as a mosaic and show us the beautiful 
whole of the interior of the dome looking up from all these little individual mass cam frames, something like 200 images. And this person said, A, they can't do it because there's no references, which I find silly because all you do is process the images. The geometry is there, as you're going to see as I go through some of my other images tonight. And bingo, you then fit them together like a, like, 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 like a puzzle. You just fit the geometry. It's hexagonal. <clears throat> you can see it on some of the individual frames. You fit it together, and looking up at the dome from inside, you're toward one side, so it's going to be a little distorted. Well, you can easily take that out in the computer by simply shifting your perspective to the center looking up. And the other thing they said was, well, NASA is simply taking these frames to what they call flat field the cameras, meaning they want a flat reference. And on Earth, what astronomers do uh, before and after their nightly run, when they take digital imagery through telescopes of objects, they take what are called flat field frames, both professionals and amateurs, given that amateurs now have equipment that in most cases is better than professionals have access to, depending upon which institution or which university. And we're coming up to the top of the hour, so let me kind of stop there, because I want to pick up on what we have found on Mars in the way of this extraordinary crystalline dome that should not exist, and why is it that NASA is literally not telling us, not admitting what's there, even though they have stunningly taken now several sets of hundreds of frames which is time and more critically bandwidth to send all this incredible imagery down to earth every frame is you know megabits so why are they taking the time to do this when they claim they have no time unless it is super important and it's not just to flat field the cameras you're on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, April 17th, 2021. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, so I'll simply, you know their names by now, you know their bios, they're on the uh, guest page at the bottom. So go there if you're missing who's talking about what. I want to talk to Bob Harrison, because Bob, um, you sent me something very interesting earlier in the week that I wanted to pick up on. If you go back to the other side of midnight, you know, guest page tonight and you click on item number eight remember fast links under the um, banner on the guest page that will take you to my items number eight is a video that was posted on reddit uh, an amateur out there another obsessed with compulsive put together a very good uh, summation of all the frames that NASA had released of what's called the lander vision system this was the automated computer-controlled camera that was able to match the map of the terrain with the actual location of the spacecraft and guide them down to within 15 feet of exactly where they wanted to land. Pretty good. And on the way down, all of these frames were accumulated in the computer. Uh, it was a separate computer from the other computers that are running the Perseverance mission. And when they sat on the surface for several days, they were able to uplink through this little soda straw of the bandwidth limitation. Um, many, many, many of those frames, which this enterprising uh, Reddit uh, participant in the Perseverance discussion put together as a video, as a movie. And he added the Bernard Herman soundtrack from Psycho, which kind of a weird choice. But anyway, if you click on item number eight, you will see this video of the descent and landing of Perseverance on the surface of Mars on February 18th, late in the afternoon, between about 3.30 and 4 o'clock local time. Why is the time important? Because the sun is gradually setting in the west because Mars rotates in the same direction as the Earth does, has about the same tilt, 25 degrees. So three-something in the afternoon is equivalent to three-something in the afternoon here on Earth in the northern hemisphere. Item number nine is uh, a frame from the color camera. I keep calling it the GoPro. It's not. It's another uh, company, but it's generically, you know, GoPro is like Kleenex. It's, you know, action sports cameras that are reliable, rugged, available, pretty cheap. NASA took some of those, refurbished them for space, mounted them looking up and looking down, and we got all kinds of amazing video of parachute deployment. We have color view looking down of the spacecraft descending on the parachute, the heat shield falling away. Anyway, item number nine is one of those frames. And if you compare the, the surface in item number eight, the video, black and white, with item number nine, which is a color frame, you'll see this bizarre glint, this glow, this brightness of the surface that's very anomalous, and as the spacecraft is descending and is moving relative to the surface, this glint, this glare, this glow, this technically it's a backscatter of solar illumination because the sun is behind the spacecraft. It's setting over in the west, and you're looking east. So this is backscatter from something on or just above the surface. And Bob brought to my attention earlier this week that there is a group now that have kindly 
glommed onto this. They they realize looking at it that it's it's kind of weird. It's different. It's not been seen before, or at least it hadn't been seen until someone went looking. Bob, why don't you tell us the background story and what they are saying this is? Good morning, everyone. Uh, yes. Well, basically, I, I was doing an image search for uh, for Jezero Crater images uh, on Google, and one of the images led me to a a discussion thread where somebody was asking uh, why this glint, uh, asking pretty provo provocatively, and uh, was getting <laughs> some nasty replies from other. But in the end, uh, it, so wait, it wait, 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 wait. Why would why would an honest engineering question? We're landing on Mars. It's an alien planet. Mm -hmm. We're seeing something we haven't seen before. What is it? Why would it provoke a negative response? To me, science is about asking questions, particularly when you see a phenomenon you've never seen before. Why were they hostile to the questioner? Well, it was pretty weird. Uh, who's been accused of uh, bringing conspiracy theory into a, oh uh, my. a scientific discussion. You're kidding! <laughs> well, wait, wait, what, did, what, 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 what did that tell your political bump? Well, it, uh, it suggested perhaps that uh, what, what's been on the last few shows is uh, getting out and about and someone is out there to stamp out burning ducks, so no one yeah. asks this question, and you accuse them of being, oh, a conspiracy theorist. In other words, it's censorship. They're trying mm -hmm. to, to cow the questioner into thinking there was something wrong with a really brilliant question because it mm -hmm. opens up the Pandora's box of what is causing the backscatter. Well, the thread was actually closed after the second page. You're kidding. Quite a curt comment. No conspiracy ah. here. Someone is terrified of simple questions. Wow, isn't that special? Anyway, so did the questioner ever get an answer? Oh, yes. People came up with answers. And, and the questioner, I think, knew, the, knew that there was a... a uh, a, a, a mundane answer to it anyway, because he started putting up some videos uh, of his own on the on the, an effect called the Sea Leaguer effect, or, or also known as the opposition surge effect or opposition spike effect, uh, which uh, when you've got the sun behind you uh, can... Uh, operate on uh, distances between planets so sometimes planets can get a bright spot when uh, when they're opposition to the earth uh, so mars you know there's a great picture out there i found i haven't put it up a great picture of mars from nasa uh, showing a bright spot on the center of mars caused by this effect uh, and uh, so and and it, so anyway so the um, so when you know a few weeks ago put up that video showing that tracking glint across Jezero Crater, you know if you're non-technical like me, you're thinking uh, could this be just a feature of the camera? 
but having found this, I, I this this um, to some people well-known effect, the Zeeliga effect, uh, we can say that it actually is something a glint tracking across the the surface of uh, of uh, Jezero Crater as the Perseverance descends, and it actually can also be found on video of um, Curiosity Rover descending towards. Um, oh, now that's the, interesting because Ron and I have been name. discussing: is there a dome over Gale Crater, which is three times the size of Yezero? It's almost a hundred miles across. It has this peak in the center, so-called Mount Sharp that you could anchor a dome to, you know, you put the constructional supports on the peak and then you spread your dome out around it. But if, if the dome ever existed, given what I've seen of a lot of curiosity imagery, it has to be much older than the Ezero's dome and pretty much almost non-existent. So did you, did you look at the comparative video between curiosity and Yezero? Yes. If people go to the fast link items, Okay. And click click on Bob. Okay, clicking on Bob. What about Bob? Go to, <laughs> go to my items. Okay. Now we want to go down to item number eight. Number eight. Ah, GIF of Perseverance Landing. So okay. this this shows a, a short GIF of that uh, bright spot tracking. Yeah. You're just about to see it. From one of two cameras that photographed it on the way down, the color camera and the black and white lander vision system camera. And if you get out of that and click on number nine, this is quite a long uh, okay. video curiosity coming down, but quite early on uh, and until about 50% into the video is the uh, lander swings about under its parachute. Okay, there goes the heat shield. Oh, I can see it right above the heat shield. I never noticed it. A very bright. Uh, oh yeah. Zeeliger effect, and uh, it's it's gone out of frame. That's why I didn't notice it because it will, because unlike on, will, go ahead. It comes back again. You can see it. Okay, I oh yeah, I see it now. Look at that! I never noticed. See, even if you're you think you're a good observer. When you encounter something which is really kind of outside your experience, yeah, it's, it's, it, now it's too close to see. It appears yeah. at the top of the video when the heat shield goes away, then it comes back in briefly, and now I think we're too close to see it. Uh, you know, this is from Malin's camera uh, on, on Curiosity. Really amazing video. Wow. Yeah. So... Number 10, okay. people want to just shut that down All for right. a moment, Doing uh, that. is a, Wiki, a Wikipedia explanation of the effect. Um, okay, well, the Seeliger effect or the backscatter effect or the anti-sun effect, I mean, we, we talked about all of these many weeks ago, is created when you have a medium in front of you, which is backscattering sunlight, which is behind you, and kicking it back like one of those 3M signs where there's little glass beads embedded in a matrix, which is why they reflect back light so brightly at night. 
And I told you the story of my friend Charlie, whose son was killed going up the wrong uh, ramp on the, on the mass turnpike. And he spent the rest of his life developing to embed in the, in the on-ramps and the off-ramps these little colored discs, which were red for no, 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 do not go up this, you know. So even in deep fog, someone looking over their hood where their headlights are looking like three or four feet in front of the car, they would see that they were on the wrong ramp, turn around and not get killed like Charlie's son did. So this is a well-known effect. 3M put it into a screen back when we had, you know, slide projectors and movie projectors, and they wanted the, the, the glass beads embedded in the matrix to kick light back. What I'm saying is it's not so much the effect as what's causing the effect because the brightness of these glints tells me the surface has to have a high percentage of glass. Now on Earth, you can also get this from the atmosphere. If you're in an airplane looking down through thin clouds, the water droplets beneath you opposite the sun will kick back this, this light, this backscatter, this Seeliger effect, so that you can see it and even photograph it. I've seen it many times, particularly when you're going into or out of airports, because the condensation close to the ground is different than at altitude where the air is much drier. Or you can see it on the moon where you see astronauts and you'll see their shadows and then around their heads, which is where the camera is up near their chest, you'll see this bright halo of light. It's not that these are supernatural astronauts or saints walking on the moon. It's at the lunar surface because it has a 50% concentration of little glass beads, kicks the light back toward the camera during Apollo, unlike any other normal surface. When you go out to the desert or you go out to any landscape, most soils, most terrains do not do this. It requires very special conditions with an active optical medium in the soil, in the upper few microns of the soil to give you that kickback because the rays of the sun have to go in, bounce around inside the little glass particle and then come back out basically the same way they came in and those conditions are not met in most soils on earth certainly uh you know when you're flying into airports in most places you don't see this because the atmosphere has to be right for it to happen in the air in terms of humidity and moisture and little cloud droplets so what was the bottom line of the discussion did they say, oh, it's just a natural phenomenon and move on? Well, I think anybody who read this thread would have um, learned that it was a natural phenomenon. <laughs> um, but I it was, um, it's quite. The, the fellow who posted this seemed to be from probably somewhere like Russia or Ukraine going by his name. Uh, so I don't know why the hostility may be another thread. He is a conspiracy theorist. Mm. But um, item number 11 under my items is a video of the effect on uh, taken from drones uh, showing the, the, the effect on very, you know, surfaces that are not very reflective. Um, and uh, if you look at that, what you can see is that 
although non-reflective surfaces. Uh, no, wait, 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 wait. I'm just looking at them flying over a tennis court, and the grass is doing the same thing. Because yes, remember, grass, I, I, grass. Now I'm looking at a tennis court where it's barely visible here because of the alignment of the blades of grass. Remember, grass blades are shiny, yeah. and I can see the shadow of the of the drone. Um, these are very, these are special artificial environments. Like that looked like astroturf. Yeah. You know. Now, there is something of a beach and uh, other places, but the, well, um, beach sand is made the, of what? Yeah. yeah. So the interesting thing is. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What is yeah. beach sand made of? Silica. Silicon dioxide, which is yeah. glass. Yeah. There are no beaches so what, on Mars. One one of the things that comes out of the, the video is that the effect is very weak. Oh, incredibly uh, on, weak on, on Earth, yeah. Non non reflective surface, you know, on matte surfaces, mm -hmm. and that he's had to t he or she has had to turn down the gamma to uh, to bring it out. So. Um, so it can Bob? so you can yeah. Uh, yeah, Ron, what go about ahead. snow? Oh sorry, what about snow? I don't know. We had, I haven't seen it on snow. <laughs> snow should be brilliant. I, I have seen it for myself on the fairways of the local golf course when it was closed for lockdown. I've been walking the fairways and even though the grass is quite matte, uh, Rain is aligned at all in the same direction, mm -hmm. and have had this ceiling effect around my head. Uh, so it's quite interesting to see it for myself. Yeah, I'm seeing in this video they say you know enhanced contrast, enhanced contrast, and yeah. it, it's it's nothing like what we're seeing on Mars. No, it's much brighter in those two uh, videos of the uh, yep. descents. Yep. See and. This gets us back to the idea of, well, what's causing it on the surface of Mars? And my, you know, initial hypothesis was there had to be a lot of glass in the surface. And if you look now at, at the closest images taken with the mass cam or with the super cam, we, you can see trillions of little glass beads in the soil, in the regolith of Mars. And those beads are what's causing this opposition effect, this silicon effect. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the. Oh, it's barely perceptible on this Earth video, mm. and then it has to be enhanced to see it. Well, we saw it on a video from from Perseverance, and it wasn't enhanced at all. It was just there, blatantly there. So that's one of their efforts. And what I find interesting is you say that after this discussion got started, they closed the thread. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's telltale. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Who's afraid to talk about opposition surges when you land on certain craters on Mars? And again, going back to Ron's model, which is where this whole thing, that's why I was caught up by the sun glint, because as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh my God, you know, Gerbron is right. At some point in Martian history, they used the craters as places of occupation and agriculture and habitation when the atmosphere was no longer habitable. And lo and behold, that's what we have found. Now, what was this, this email that I heard was going around <clears throat> where someone claimed that the whole idea of domes on Mars is silly because you can breathe the atmosphere? Andrew? 
Uh, yes. <laughs> Sorry, Richard. I was looking at Bob's materials. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, you want me to read it? Yeah, please. <laughs> okay, hang on a sec here. Uh, oh, boy. Can you talk while I find it? Because I just have to relocate this it. This is live radio. We can actually watch <laughs> over your shoulder. Remember, everything is bugged. My little uh, mouse, by the way, is being very, very insistent. I think he wants me to go do something. You know, I oh, have yeah, it. you have. I have this little mouse which has been galloping over my big um, um, cat that Robin got me for one of my birthdays many years ago, right next to the console where I run the show. And he's been not only running up and down the the large stuffed cat, which is not a cat. It's kind of a simulacrum of a cat. It's very, you know, kind of um, art deco. But he's been running around on on my console. I now know Keith has been changing my settings. (laughs) <laughs> oh boy well you have to excuse me folks i just have i did a lot of yard work today and, and my allergies are kicking up i don't have covid it's just <laughs> an itchy nose uh let me read to you uh what was so the little back and forth was um do you want me to start with yours you want me to just go right to the response? no no just go right to the response yeah okay hold on a minute there I've probably been looking in minute detail at these locations not a little bit a lot more than you have i've also been doing far more pans and quite intellectually honest courage. I'm sure I'm exhibiting it. You can't stitch sky images together unless they're connected to the horizon. And even then the sky is simply blended while the horizon is stitched. The stitching is done by edge pixel matching and there's not enough variance in the sky for it to be matched. Nonetheless, those sky images you refer to are not a sky panorama. They're sky flats, which are stacked and use to flat field balance and clean up the images. That's what Holger was talking about. So this is the same um, comment. I use them in my image processing. They are most often repeated images of the same spot of a blank sky. Uh, there you go. And then the comment is, Mars didn't bleed to death, needing domes to gather straggling survivors trying to breathe. You don't need giant domes in an atmosphere. So there, that's the premise. Um, mm. Now, Ron mm-hmm. answered. I don't know if Ron wants to answer, but what he said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, why, don't, why don't we read uh, Ron's oh, answer? Sure. You want me to read it, Ron? Is that okay? Yeah, I don't have a copy of it. I just did it off the cuff when I saw it, when I read the email. Yeah, but, yeah and, go ahead. Yeah, and everybody, this is just really good. We have to have opposing sides to figure this out, and these are excellent points. So Ron's response was, I never heard them called sky flats, but that's on me. I know what you're talking about. On a purely technical level, I know he's referencing stuff which does get done for mundane reasons. He's definitely correct that it isn't easy to even try to align frames with little or no distinct content. Now, a systematic mapping operation could be plotted by time codes, etc., but it would be pretty hard to reconstruct from the outside of such an operation without all, without all that ancillary data did it plot from the left, the right, in a descending spiral or quadrants? Was it comprehensive or did it sample a sequence of zones? I think the sheer number of those flats, in this case, is strongly indicative of an actual search, which, which, again, Richard referenced, they did it again this week, rather than just collecting extra filler. But it is not enough to base a theory upon. It is, however, enough to make a supportive cause for possibilities like don'ts. Hmm. 
You want to give us the cliff mm. notes on what you said there toward the end? Because I, I think I lost the thread. Well, the, my thought was that they're looking for something, which to my mind, uh, this is a sort of a backhanded acceptance of the uh, of that other model, uh, because if you're looking for uh, holes, you know, or danger points, peering on the edge and just about to come crashing down to the surface from, you know, who knows what sort of perturbation might happen from your the noise you make or the or vibrations you start, uh, then you know you might just kind of scattershot look around are there really any holes to worry about etc um that's what i was thinking the idea that you would um map it well that seems unnecessary unless they're quite sure i mean i agree with you richard that you would uh you would get some content to match things up with if you enhance the pictures first well see that's uh, all right let me let me, let me go step by step and take yeah. apart this this uh expert okay first James Bell, who is the scientist who's the principal investigator of the mass cam zoom cameras, the two dual-mounted bore-sided cameras, both of them telephoto, four-to-one zooms, um, he says in the copious literature which has been published on the mass cam Z system that occasionally during the mission, they will take a couple, that's two, flat field frames during the latter parts of an extended mission to check the amount of dust that's fallen on the little color charts, which Tim and I had discussions uh, a couple, three weeks ago about how accurate they were and how useful. There is a brilliant red, green, and blue um, in, in, in duplicate on Perseverance right in front of the camera so we can see the colors. <clears throat> well, the dust that they keep saying is falling out of the sky and covering everything on Mars will tend to obscure and mute and kind of blur those colors together. They can't use them unless the wind blows away the, the dust, which has happened on a number of missions. Um, so they do what's called flat fielding. You take pictures of a blank surface of known luminosity like the sky which on Earth is used by astronomers, I said, before and after their evening observing runs to flat field to calibrate the frames they're taking during their observing program. <clears throat> Bell said they're going to do the same thing. They did it on Curiosity. They plan to do it on Perseverance. But you don't take hundreds of pictures of the entire sky more than once within two weeks to flat field because all you need is a couple of frames of a neutral part of the sky at a certain angle from the sun so you get the scatter etc and the martian sky is much more reliably boring we've been told than earth skies so it only takes a couple of frames so you wouldn't waste the bandwidth the time the energy the plotting the computer time all of that to photograph the entire sky not once but twice so that part of his explanation is out the window. That's not why they're doing this. They are definitely searching for something. And I think, Ron, you're probably on to something. You're looking for yeah. things that are closer to Percy than farther away. Because if you're flying a helicopter and the dome is not a thin sheet of crystal, or didn't used to be, but in fact has stuff hanging down now, if you move the rover, which they've been doing in increments, 
and you take photographs of the same sky over and over again, you get parallax, you get motion, you get trigonometry, you get a 3D potential of putting together a 3D model of the stuff, the glass stuff that's hanging down that you don't want your little helicopter to fly into. And um, so that that's the first thing is you wouldn't take the entire sky to do flat fielding. Number two. Richard. Yes. Richard, um, you have about 60 oh, seconds. Oh, I want to yeah. ask you, I want to <laughs> ask you a question after the break um, about this as well. Okay. I'm glad someone was watching the time because when I get into these things, it's kind of hard to be an impresario as well as running engineering. You're on the other side of midnight. We're having this interesting conversation about the reality of a dome over the crater on Mars that Perseverance landed in. And if you're wondering how a spacecraft can land in a crater covered by a dome, well, the dome is no longer really a dome. It's moth-eaten, it's eroded, it's fragmentary, and obviously, if you look at the imagery we presented, about half of it in the western part is missing. But there's just enough left to cause amazing optical effects, which when we come back, we're going to show you. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and with a cast of thousands, we shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. the other side of midnight for this Saturday, April 17th. My guests, Andrew, Ron, Tim, Bob, Keith, Kinthea, who's very, very, very silent. Maybe she'll say something because the artwork of this dome, which I'm going to show momentarily, is really incredibly impressive. Anyway, Andrew, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, I did, or do, and I know... um, our researcher there, he would probably ask the same question. And Tim kind of brought it up when he talked about 
the helicopter and the Martian dust that was sort of the sand that's gathering on top of the on top of the um, solar panel is would we see or can we see especially if there's a big dust storm dust or Martian dust dust gathering on the remnants of the dome like would that become more obvious or would it blow right back off given the past history of of Mars missions starting with little perseverance remember it had this little tiny microwave oven sized rover called sojourner that yep. supposedly was named after sojourner truth who was one of the spearheads of the underground railway uh for for uh, slaves freeing to freedom in canada uh literally parts of the railway were underground you know and yeah i think ron that you stepped in one on your farm in uh pennsylvania when you were a kid you fell through the roof and lo and behold found yourself in the middle of the underground railway uh that's actually true <laughs> wow. yeah it was it's a right great story and it has the advantage of being true okay go ahead yeah oh well i didn't know that it was relevant here yeah there was a, a little orchard uh what you'd call a heritage orchard uh extinct varieties of common fruits that were around in revolutionary times but aren't now this was back east uh and the 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 ground was always kind of springy uh there in the orchard well one day i'm walking along and all of a sudden whoosh i fall through fall down about 10 feet and i end up in water and uh, i look up and there's all this vaulted brickwork oh, just this my. beautiful beautiful colonial style brickwork just going off in all directions i mean literally there were like three branches that i could see going off and um, me standing in a foot of water and i said oh so i i managed to get someone's attention and they dropped down a ladder and i got out of there but yeah that was part of the literal underground railway uh, okay the reason the, this uh, is relevant is because nasa when they named little sojourner first rover on mars a quote technological test remember uh, a technique technical demonstration like the perseverance you know helicopter is supposed to be <clears throat> they named it sojourner they said after sojourner truth who was spearheading the underground railway for freed slaves when in fact sojourner also applies to a lodge member of a masonic lodge that goes from one lodge to another. So the fact that little Pathfinder and Sojourner were packaged in a tetrahedral package, a tetrahedral pyramid, just like those flying in the Navy video that I talked about at the beginning of the show, and they landed little Pathfinder slash Sojourner at 19.5 degrees on Mars, which again is the circumscribed angle of a tetrahedron and they named their rovers sojourner as a missionary from one masonic lodge to another again nasa never a straight answer okay um so back to andrew go ahead yeah so if if there's dust storms just like again like the way tim pointed out the helicopter has you know we can see the picture or the photograph of the dust or the Martian regolith kind of gathering on top of the solar panel, that weird little thing tapped on top that Tim, you know, assiduously pointed out. Could that be happening with the remnants of the dome? I mean, would, would we see Martian dust or sand, you know, sort of spewing or 
Do you know what I mean? Like hanging on that. Well, this goes or... back to the Sojourner story because what they expected, what NASA expected as yeah. a technical demonstration is they'd send this little rover with its solar panel to Mars. It would yeah. crawl around. The dust storms would come. The dust would fall out of the sky. And soon the solar panel would be useless. Right. right. Yeah. Did not happen. On the succeeding mission, on um, the Athena missions, uh, Opportunity and Spirit, uh, every once in a while, something, it turned out to be dust devils, Mars's dust devil heaven, would come along. These are like dry, um, uh, yeah. electromagnetically driven uh, whirlwinds, like yeah. little tornadoes. They would come and they would blow all the dust off the solar panels and their power consumption would go from almost, you know, 30% up to 100% for months and months and months and months. And then they would slowly accumulate more dust and then another dust devil. So, no, the dome on Mars should be cleaned periodically by the winds, by vortices. We actually have spotted on one of the uh, Perseverance images of yeah. the temple, the Kodiak temple, there are two dust devils appeared in the cameras on that flat plain between where um, the Temple Butte sits and the far crater rim. There's a flat space there. You can see on the uh, MRO imagery looking down, which is conducive, obviously, thermally for creating dust devils. So, no, I think the glass is pretty clean because periodic storms on Mars, particularly if the density of the atmosphere is a lot higher and we've been told these surfaces should be clean. So it's a really dynamic environment. Very, I mean, this is a... very. So let me let me go to my number fourteen. All right, you know how to get there. Remember, click on uh, Richard's items on, under the banner when you get to the guest page. Take you to number fourteen. Um, this individual who's telling us how he cannot put together mosaics of the sky because they're all blank. Well, Ron touched on it a few moments ago. Uh, you want to click on this number 14 and make it full screen, all right? Because you want to look at the exquisite moth-eaten glass geometry of the dome over Yezero. And you will see two dark spots, one in the upper right corner and the other over on the left side, about almost halfway down the, down the frame. This is an image taken by the mass cam looking almost straight up. The object on the right appears to be something which is obscuring the glass geometry behind it. Does everybody see that? It's semi-transparent. It's not black. It's like, it's, it's attenuating the light, but it's not totally obscuring the light. And then the circle over on the left turns out to be a reflection of the dark spot, darker spot on the right, because you can see the mirror geometry of the dome reflected point for point and detail for detail in that curving arc on the left of the frame. And what I should do someday in my copious spare time is to take an arrow and actually point out individual features and that this is a reflection, what's called a total a grazing incidence reflection, obviously, Tim, of one of your pillars, one of your supports, which is rising up 
from behind Perseverance, because we're near one edge of the dome, and you're seeing it in the sky when Bell took and pointed his mask cam overhead and started taking the mosaics. So to this anonymous critique of what I'm recommending, which is to make a mosaic, stitch together all the frames of the sky, as Ron said a moment ago, you don't take the blank frames. You process each frame. And then like a beautiful, gorgeous color mosaic or a um, Islamic tile or a Renaissance cathedral stained glass window, you fit the frames together to match and map out all the stunning geometry we can see of the dome, problem solved. I have got the feeling, guys, particularly Andrew, that this guy, even though he has the technical capability, does not want to do this either, A, because of what he's terrified of finding, that we're right, that NASA's lying, or B, someone has told him to, like the guys, you know, writing on the Seeliger thread, to basically get rid of this, uh, you know, bothersome um, citizen scientist out here who's raising all kinds of uncomfortable questions because you never want to have them put together a mosaic because then everybody on the earth will see the dome. Well, I can okay. tell you right now. Oh. Go ahead, Andrew. Go, Andrew. Go. Yeah. Well, when I look at 13, Richard. 13, okay. Yeah, we're, we're out of sequence. I was going to do um, oh. 11, 12, and 13 momentarily. Oh, but, okay, okay. Well I, well, I can do it now, okay? 11, 12, and 13. 11 is an image that I found. 12 is an image that Ron sent to me for a totally different purpose and I went, oh, my God, look at that. And I'll explain what the, that is in a moment. And then 13 is another processing of an image we discussed with Holger last weekend. So let's go back to 11. This is a photograph with the sun basically high overhead. It's high noon, not on the moon, but on Mars. Okay? There are no shadows. The field is flat. You can see the two tread tracks of little Percy's wheels. They're not little. They're very large, as a matter of fact. And on the horizon, you see this bizarre, bright oval surrounded by a succession of ovals that extend up out of frame into the sky. Now, I've looked at a million, you know, high noon shots here in New Mexico. I have never seen an incredibly oval, elliptical uh, brilliance at the horizon, which is beyond the the farthest mountains, because you can clearly see that the brightness does not extend down over that uh, crater rim, which is beyond the temple, which is the dark object just to the left of center on the near horizon. Now you scroll down to number 12. This was an image Ron sent me for a totally different purpose. And the thing that leaped out at me is we're now looking about 90 degrees to the first image. So if the first image is looking west, this image is looking kind of north. And it's roughly the same time. It's a different day, but it's the same time of day because they're taking a lot of shots with the sun like at high noon. And you can see the shadows on the objects in, in the foreground, rocks, if some of them are and some of them are not. There's almost no shadows, so the sun is coming directly down. But again, you see this enhanced brightness, this halo 
behind the peaks in the background. So whatever's causing the scattering is beyond the near field objects. And finally, number 13, this is a photograph taken, photograph, image, digital image taken by the uh, nav cams. Uh, looking again west, you can see the temple there. You can see the background uh, ridges, which are the crater rim. And then you see a brightness at the horizon. And then you see another brightness at the very top of the frame. That according to the numbers, the, the dates and times of when this was sent down, which NASA is providing us, you know, they're providing us all the data, but they make us put it all together ourselves, meaning it's very, very Masonic. If you don't ask the right question, you won't get the right answer. Masonic up to the, uh, up to the 33rd degree, whatever. Anyway, the brightness at the top is the sun. The brightness at the horizon and that cone of light extending down from the sun in both directions radiating out. You can see the kind of radiating isocontour lines. That is only geometrically possible if you're photographing the sun from inside the goldfish bowl, from inside the dome, what's left of it. And there was so much of it <clears throat> that even though it's a bare you know, trace of what it used to be, there's enough to be optically significant and to create extraordinary optical effects that I have seen in no other surface imagery shot by any mission to the surface of Mars going back to the original Viking mission. Now, Andrew. Yes. Uh, well, the thing that stands out to me on – okay, let's go back to 11 because they all kind of tie together – Richard. So if we go to number 11 of Richard's items, okay, we've talked about this before, and I'm noticing it more and more and more. But if you look at those distant hills, there is such an incredible glow, like bands of glow that it, it almost looks like a soup of color, like sitting in these valleys, right? It's, it, it pops out over and over again. And to me, you only get that effect. Like I see a lot of that here in the West Coast because we have a lot of moisture in the air. There's a lot of atmosphere. And you get a you know you get a, a fading background. Um, now we get the colors of the trees here, but this is incredible, Richard. There's a real like glow in like almost like it's a like a reservoir color sitting in these valleys, and either they're that color or there's something optically going on. It's the same thing in number twelve. If you look at the distant left, those back hills are even brighter. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're bright. It's like, uh, it's like a Monet watercolor. Yeah, go ahead, Ron. Andrew? Yes. Yeah, they, since, since there's that one, which, uh, yes, there's a version of it in my section as well. Uh, when you put it, when we, we do not have a two-week lead time on every show for all the <laughs> listeners out there. And a lot of stuff gets uh, uh, put together. And, oh, my God, can we use this? Oh, should we use yeah. that? And so, it, it, yeah, we there's duplication sometimes. Sorry. Uh, but the... Uh, if so you wait, wait, wait. are you saying are you saying we should go to your images? Uh, it wouldn't make any difference. You did this is the uh, this is the same image oh, okay. in my okay. section as well. So we can deal with this since we're here. All right, I've got other stuff. All right. uh, the uh, there's a nice rainbow on it. Um, you know, and I I resisted the urge to pump it up a little bit so that you could so that that was more distinct. You know, so this is a pretty this is a pretty naked image, but. 
the uh, if you look at it, and I I assume if you click on it, you get the larger version. If uh, anybody that yep. wants to look at it, and look frame. very carefully at the yeah at the color. It extends down to the edge of the ridge, let's call it. That's uh, you know the foreground, uh, but no further. You can see very clearly it goes down into there, but not down onto the image. So therefore, it's not a just a lens it effect. It can't be sort. in and, the and, camera. No, exactly. And the other thing, guys, and I've noticed this over and over again, is that so. For instance, in this number, I better make sure I'm on the right number. Number twelve, um, and it's the same thing in Richard's images. Again, if you look at the coloring, at the lighting effect in the foreground, middle ground, it's almost dampened. Like I've been talking about, mm -hmm. I've been trying to find images of, anybody can do this. Go look up uh, uh, greenhouses, like large industrial green, greenhouses on a cloudy day. And there's this, this even lighting that's going on. Now you can you say, well, have diffuse exactly. sunlight. And yet in the background, those distant hills are lit up, like I said, as if it's like, wow, I want to go over there and hang out where that warm hill is. And you see that over and over again. And that's my point is, and, and it, not just that, but the sky is extraordinary. Like if we could get a, you know, a gigapan of this, it would be, I think it'd be really beautiful. But it's that haze, Richard, in the background, again, going to your number 13. It just, it, it looks so atmospheric. And I mean, I see that kind of thing, like I say, where we have a lot of moisture here on the West Coast. So it's either it's either they've got a lot of moisture there on Mars or there's something else going on. Yes. Glass dome. And it's right there. It's yes. not far, far away. It's exactly. it's between the foreground in the pictures and that uh arcology there you are, Richard. Uh that hill which is actually an arcology uh, yes. back behind it. And you can see very distinctly that that's, uh, well, I hate to use a word like fuzzy because it's perfectly fine. But I mean, it's it's optically degraded slightly yes. compared to the foreground, which is very, very sharp. And that's yes. because there's something in between. And anyone who doubts that, I got one more thing. If you blow that up, even just the primary image, blow it up a little bit and look to the left uh, about midway from uh, the center to the left and at the very top edge. You see that little dark spot? Yes. That's not an image flaw because it's not in other images in the same location. It's not dirt. It's something stuck to the dome. I'm convinced okay. there's other dark I spots think on the I, I think I may have an answer because Ron and I have been going back and forth. <clears throat> he says these are yes. holes. That was his initial thing. And in a brilliant dome with multiple layers and scattering, why would you have a hole that would be dark? Because it wouldn't. It would just blend in. The next thing I said boulders. The, the next thing he said, well, it's something stuck in the dome, which is dark, mm -hmm. which is a useful model. Then you have to ask yourself, well, what could be stuck in the dome? And then I realized, remember that pan I was going to send you the other night of the ground in front of Curiosity? And there was this curious dune which had these little dime-sized holes in it that were very shallow, but a different color. And someone said in a chat thread, oh, it looks like these are raindrops. You know how it starts to rain, big drops? And if you're in a sandy terrain, the drops come down, they go splat, yeah. and you get this pattern of little depressions in the sand from falling raindrops. Well, there's no falling raindrops on Mars. So what could it be? Then some bright guy said, well, we're so-and-so... Uh, uh, you know, feet away from the landing site, 
could this be debris from the sky crane, which of course blasted the surface with six rockets lowering two-ton perseverance to the surface on the cables, and the rocket blast eroded the surface. You can see it as these two bright areas mm -hmm. in the satellite image you're looking down on both sides of Perseverance. And if all that stuff was lofted into the air because of the blast of the rockets, it had to go somewhere. And I'm thinking now, Ron, that what we're seeing is stuck in the dome fairly close to the rover from the landing of the rover itself and Percy's Skycrane rockets. Okay. Okay. And it would be dark. That would it would be yes, new. That would be worse. It would it would mm -hmm. still be hanging around, it's stuck there. And it's another reason why they really want to map your dome in case you fly your helicopter into a piece of glass in which the debris from the sky crane got stuck. See how it all fits together? Or Richard, what uh, about Go ahead, Andrew. What about the, yeah. the covering that that was um sort of popped off before the parachute came out. All that debris went flying up into the... Yeah, but that's so tiny, 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 and it landed miles and miles downrange. Because okay. at that point, they were still moving 1,000 miles an hour, remember, when they popped the parachute? Right. That stuff had huge momentum. It did not land anywhere near Perseverance. Which is the segue to Timothy. Tim, are you there in your echoing amphitheater? I absolutely am, yes. Oh, I Just love that the... sound. Gosh, we have to we have Excellent. to we have to you know we have to package that. Anyway, this segues directly to you because if you go and look at my frames number thirteen, twelve, and particularly eleven, and I might add ten, there's got to be a way in your incredible computer uh, program that you're going to talk about in terms of modeling the dome to put in the lighting characteristics and the scattering functions. So with ray tracing, we literally get a da Vinci model of what the light should look like when the sun is at high noon, and there's no possible way it produced any brilliance at, as an oval at the horizon. Well, there are many things that, which are possible with the software I have and other people have, but... Uh... What, what you're doing there is you're, you're mixing up a, a few different types of software which, which don't necessarily give you a, the result you're looking for. I mean, where, where I'm coming from is that we need to join dots to, to make assumptions. Those assumptions allow me to model something as a, as a 3D model of what we think a dome could be. And you know, I underline that this, this I treat the whole of all of this as a blue sky project. I affectionately call it blue sky project because what I mean by that is I do not want to limit my imagination by in, 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 in the conceptual stage. So I'm exploring uh, along the way, and along the way I'm finding there are dots which are joining, which I join, and there are also dots that are joining because there are absolute features which match up on the terrain. Wow. And those, those are the ones which I find fascinating because, as, as you always say, uh, we need to, you know, extract the, the data from the noise. And uh, that, that's what I'm looking to do, is to draw the conclusions from what we're finding on the terrain. Okay. So, so Richard, just, just to go back, I mean, yes, if there well, was a let me, let, me, let, let me set the terrain here. We've got four minutes to the, uh, bot, the top of the hour. Uh, 
<clears throat> so give us a, an overview, and then when we come back, we'll go point by point by point because you have some very interesting imagery. Well, thank you. So first of all, let me just give you a few dimensions. This, this may fit in quite nicely before the break. If you count me down, Keith. Um, the, the diameter of Jazeera Crater is 54 kilometers. That's around 18 miles. The height of the proposed dome, which I'll show you on the drawings after the break, uh, is 8.3 kilometers high, which is around 5.1 miles. The supports or columns, which I also think they could be uh, sort of cane elevators, they could be ways in, ways out, for, for they could be, way, you know, they're huge. So they are two kilometers in diameter, uh, 1.24 miles in diameter. Um, and the area of Jazeera Crater, which I'm, I'm defining, is 1,875 square kilometers, which is 724 square miles. Um, so when we look at these images, a pixel is 82 meters, which is something in the region of 270 feet. So, you know, what does that mean? It means that when we start measuring and creating uh, shapes, we can put different layers of uh, geometry and apply that geometry and draw conclusions from, from all of that data. Uh, so when the, there are features that really do emerge on, on the terrain and they happen to match up with a, a particular, you know, sort of polygonal-sided, uh, multi-sided feature, then, you know, I'm entering that information, but when there are literally features that match up in eight of the 12 places, I would expect there to be a feature if that, if that polygonal you know, shape is correct. But if there are eight out of 12 on the surface, then that to me is very intriguing indeed. So I think we're coming up to the break. Which we is, are coming up um, to the witching hour. So hold it there, everyone. My guest this morning, uh, just speaking, was Tim Saunders, who was a nautical architect, marine engineer. In his classical spare time, he is designing or retro-designing or reconstructing Martian glass domes. And the point-by-point -point comparisons he was alluding to are really gripping. And again, the preponderance of evidence of everything we've assembled over the last several weeks we've been doing this says in fact this dome is real so why doesn't nasa admit to it why don't they just tell us the truth well stay tuned you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland we shall return C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests 
pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP2 files directly from the 19 Point Archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. Welcome back, everyone. It is now the witching hour here in the land of enchantment in this gorgeous desert, which I am so lucky to inhabit, with a crescent moon overhead and sparkling stars. You know, you wonder if they are going to take images of Phobos and Deimos with the Perseverance cameras. All, you know, how many cameras can look up there's the mass cam, there's the nav cams, there's the super cam, there's the Madeira sky cam deliberately. That's a 180 degree lens looking directly up. In other words, all of these incredibly utilitarian cameras, if they were to photograph Phobos, uh, which is the inner moon of Mars, goes around Mars once every uh, seven hours and change, or Deimos, which is much farther away and takes uh, like a day and a half to go around Mars once, if they were to photograph these celestial objects, which in the Curiosity cameras were big enough to show features and craters and you can see eclipses and all this, imagine if they photographed Phobos or Deimos through the dome and we could actually look at the optical distortions of the surface features as they went behind varying densities remaining of the layers of the dome. I mean, the ability to monitor this sky phenomenon is phenomenal. Are they going to do it? Probably. 
Are they going to tell us? Well, that is why we're doing these shows, because ultimately it's up to you. If you out there in radio land in 190 some countries listening to the other side of midnight, if you send emails, if you begin to, you know, petition NASA to tell us the truth about the dome, tell us the truth about the dome, eventually something is going someone somewhere will have a conscience or will gather courage or wind up with larger kahunes, who knows what. In fact, we're seeing some interesting non-vocal responses from the Perseverance team in the sense that since we've been talking about this, they have been taking more pictures of the sky at different times of day allowing us to reconstruct the optical scattering geometry of being inside, essentially, a glass fishbowl. That's why we have those interesting ovals around the horizon. No matter which azimuth you look at high noon, something which does not happen in an ordinary atmosphere. So let's go back to Tim Saunders and his remarkably perspicacious at this point with limited data reconstruction of the geometry of the Juzero Dome. Well, thank you. Firstly, I'd like to uh, congratulate who made the, the artwork for the, the show banner tonight. I think it looks excellent. Um, I'm sure King Pierre had something to do with it, but um, I think that really sets the mood for the evening. And ultimately, I do intend to bring the, the study I'm doing to something which is far more in line with that, which is like a finished rendering or renderings from inside and also outside of, of the dome. Um, but currently, I am very much focused on the geometry and the architecture and not at all interested in the color. I'm sorry, Richard, I know you are particularly, but I, I, to me, also the design spiral I, I, I work on with, uh, with my yachts as well. I rarely ever start with color until the geometry and the architecture is in place because I find it tends to distract. In this particular case, because we're reverse engineering, I can understand why the color is important and it is obviously a major factor in, in the dot connecting we're doing. So. I get it, but we're doing a slightly adapted uh, process here. So before we depart my, uh, your section of photographs, let's just look at your photograph on number 14, Mars Perseverance ZRO0035. You know, what we're doing is looking up and we can see a, uh, it's, it's actually a beautiful piece of art. I quite Isn't like to hang it, it on it's my wall. Even. Stunning. Yeah. It's stunning. If it weren't so gorgeous, it would be pathetic to be ignored, but the fact that it's both engineeringly accurate, because it's a real picture of something on Mars, as well as aesthetically astonishing, can you imagine what this looked like when it was new? Because I'm imagining, Tim, we're not looking like an inverted salad bowl. The Martians, whoever they were, they had an incredible artistic sense. Ron has found you know, murals and friezes and all that and a lot of the curiosity imagery. These people, this was a planet of art, not the planet of war. 
So the fact that they're ignoring it at several different levels is a crime, not just against science, it's a crime against humanity. That's interesting that the Earth or Jasum perspective of Mars is that it is a planet of war. Perhaps that is more more of an overview that we 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 were the losers we were not the victors <laughs> exactly but, um that's, that's another conversation but let's just focus on this, this photograph for a second um you know it clearly it is looking up it's like it's like almost if you're diving if you look up i've not done very much but when you do look up you see obviously um the sort of the, the levels of blue going towards the, the, the lighter color, which is obviously the atmosphere. We have a change of density between the water and the sky above. Now, we have a, a similar, very different situation going on here. Um, but clearly, there is more light at the top. And that's because of a, a lot of reasons we can get into slightly uh, shortly. Um, but what's very interesting is that we also see like the interface or the intersection between two facets, I believe, on the left-hand side, which is the you know, I, I'm, I have tried to force feed the, uh, the terrain with various different types, different number of and polygon, polygons with different numbers of sides. So we say I've tried, you know, hexagonal, I've septagonal, and I've tried. And that the one that seems to fit is absolutely um, a dodecagon, so a 12-sided figure. This, to me, looks like we're looking up the, the light is above, and what we see, this sort of like a white column or white, let's say, stripe that comes down to the bottom left corner. That is the interface between, on the inside of the dome, between two faces, between mm-hmm. two of the 12-sided figure. Mm-hmm. So with, with that, let's jump to my section, which is just below yours, and we have uh, 1A, Jazeera Crater Dome Study, blah, blah, blah. And it's worth just just clicking on that and just zooming in a little. Um, there's an awful lot of lines there, and I, I've colored them as light blue. These are the same ones which we showed actually at last week's show. And what I really, my objective here was to find what geometry could potentially fit, uh, looking at the features, looking at the, um, the section through the, uh, the terrain. I mean, to me, what I see is... There, are, there is a moat, or we talked about last week, uh, a moat or a, um, a canal or a ditch that runs around the perimeter. Yes, that could also be the upper edge of a crater. It could have been adapted. It could have been modified. It could have been created from zero. Again, let's get into the how these things were built later in the conversation. But then coming inward from the outside of the clock phase, coming towards the center, doesn't really matter, but the, the bottom left tends to show it off better than the, uh, the top right. You can see that there is like, um, after the ditch or moat, there is like another uh, plane. And then we come into my second concentric ring. Um, and you can see there's like a lot of shadowing. So that to me tells me that that is actually doming upwards. It's actually a hill. It, it, it is a higher feature than the plane that's uh, further out from the center. And as we move towards the center of the, the geometry, we get to the top of the, 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 um, the top of the hill, the top of the plateau. And that, when you zoom out, to me, tells me that what we're seeing is 
the remains potentially of part of the roof which could have collapsed. Now, I know that we're seeing, still seeing some in the sky in these photographs, um, but I think also that the bottom left looks like it, something could have collapsed on the ground and the material itself could have created the mound. Um, I get, these are all ideas I'm just putting on the table. I'm mm-hmm. brainstorming conversation. Um, and again, I don't want to go into repeating everything we talked about last week, but for example... Well, we do if, have new people falling in and out all the time, so it's not really redundant for, you know... Mm. But we do have archives, Richard, and I do have new images I'd like to talk about okay. as well. I'd like to break some new ground as well. As good, just, good. You know. So what we can see is there are... In, in, in plan view, I can see that there are 12... You can see there are 12 circular... Uh, supports or columns, not the inner circle, it's it's the sort of middle circle. And of those 12, I would say that there are witness marks on the ground which match up with probably seven or maybe eight of them. And that's me. After all this time. Wow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, let's just remember that one pixel is 82 meters, which is 270 feet. So... We also are not 100% sure if this photograph has been taken directly above and if the pixels are exactly square, if there's any perspective or foreshortening involved, there could be parallax, there could be lighting tricks and so on as well. So we don't know we have a perfect um, you know, bird's eye view of this, this crater, but I think it is pretty good. It's pretty clean, but I think it's remarkable that we have eight, seven to eight features on the ground that match up with uh, my supposed geometry, proposed geometry, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Timothy, I think you nailed it. Number I 2E. Did. Well, 2E. if that, to, yeah, go down to your picture, number uh, 2E. I just need to go back. I'm using this god-awful Google. It's one phone. of the lenses. It's the second one of the lens pictures. People will see it. Yes, number 2B. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, just two turn that, everybody just just turn that sideways, and you're looking at the dome. I think, that, I think that's as close as we're going to come to its um, original construction. You know, the bracing and stuff could add to that, whatever mm-hmm. was there. But it's that uh, sort of, um, uh, well, it's not faceting. But, well, you know, the, well, remember, the, I didn't put it because I wanted to spare Kinthea, but there's this beautiful panorama. Mm-hmm. The synthesis of the lander camera and the so-called GoPro color, which freezes a beautiful 180-degree pan by this Czechoslovakian amateur uh, who posted it, which you can literally see the concentric rings of the glass of the remaining dome stretching out in front of you, below you, on that panorama. It's from a couple, three weeks ago, just... You know, folks, go find it. That's the advantage of being in Club 19.5. You'll have a reference. But, yeah, uh, Tim, I, I think Ron's right. I think you're very, very close. Well, thank you very much, both of you. I mean, I, I believe there's a lot more to do still. Um, and, you know, again, again, I don't want to repeat everything, but if we can just revisit very quickly, 1C, you can see it's just basically my virtual, um, I call it my virtual shipyard. That's right. I, I do my 3D <laughs> design work. Um, and then also in 1D, you can see this is like a, a basic proposal of how the dome could have been. And at this stage, 
I've made it a circular feature. And at this stage, I have made it a smooth domed shape, uh, the canopy above as a smooth domed shape, which again, as I mentioned last week, is uh, an inverted catenary arch shape. So it, it's, it's very strong yeah. and it, it's, it's already fallen, if you like. It, it's in its strongest configuration. But what I want to move on to this evening, especially, is the, my next section, which is 2A and my section of 2. And there, this is something which, Richard, you gave me the, the pointer for this, and that is the influences of the Fresnel lenses. Mm. And what we can see on the, the 2A figure is like, a, I've, I've taken these from the internet. I can't remember the source, but thanks very much anyway. Um, <laughs> on the left, you can see there's a, a blue uh, dome shape, and also there is the Fresnel lens section below it. And what we're talking about purely here in light, in terms of light, is that the Fresnel lens can basically do the same job as the dome lens. And I know that light is not what we're talking here. We're talking geometry, we're talking structure. But I think it's very interesting that when you look at the Fresnel lens, it is also a, like a, a sim, has a similar feature to it, like for example, a corrugated, um, a corrugated panel. And that corrugated panel can be very strong and light and I think this is a very interesting direction to, to pursue. You mean like you have a fluorescent light in the ceiling and then you put a plastic corrugated panel under it and it focuses and concentrates light right where you want it? That's the light side of the, the conversation. But what I'm talking about is, is now structure. So, for example, if you take a, a flat roof, which is a very thin panel, it would start to sag, wouldn't it, between the beams? Right. But if you have a corrugated panel that sits above the same beams on the roof then the corrugations give rigidity and stiffness. Ah. So, I so you get two for the price of one. You get structure and you get control of light. Exactly, exactly. Now, I, I, again, the, if you go down to B, it's interesting. There's uh, just the theory of um, a basic ray diagram of, of a light source and the Fresnel lens. And then to C, you can see there's a glass Fresnel lens. Some people may have seen that as a skylight or even a headlight on a car. Let's face it, there are sort of similar optics going on there. 2D, I'm rushing through these because I want to get down to the bottom. 2D is actually the lens which is used on lighthouses. And this is a beautiful piece of kit. I'd love to have one if I ever find mm. one. But um, if you look closely, there are lots of rings of glass. And those... This, the profile that those rings of glass create when seen in section uh, create a dome. But the dome obviously has a focusing effect because this is optically engineered to, to just ah, scan. Ruffles have ridges. Yes. So the ridges are interesting. And then 2E, this is a beautiful photograph. This is actually a similar object. And if you zoom in on that, you can see... That These the were 19th century works of art when nothing for navigation in the Coast and Geodetic Survey, except the lighthouses kept ships and commerce going in the fledgling United States, prescinding obviously from Europe. But these were incredible engineering works of art. Absolutely. And, you know, this, this to me is, is 
obviously it, it completely conforms to our, our laws of physics but on the other hand it is of a different time and a different mentality i believe mm. you know, we're so deeply into the electronic age but this is a physical age where you know people were actually cutting glass and, and creating angles and, and making physical machines that would uh you know what can I say, shine the light into the great distance, whereas today somebody, I'm sure, would come up with some other thing which would be electronic-based. Uh, so I like, I like this, this almost Jules Verne sort of I feeling was thinking, about this. I was thinking of, of the time machine. Remember the incredible yes. chariot that uh, uh, George Powell created for uh, the actor who played the, you know, H.G. Wells in that spinning disc of glass? Yes, I do, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So 1870s, that was the, that came out of the 1870s, same period of time as all the steampunk stuff. Yep. 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 So just to park this for a second, because I'd like to segue slightly. What we're looking at here, I'm, I'm trying to find now the, I think I found the geometry for the, for the, for the dome in, in Jezero Crater. That's a 12 sided figure. I, now ask myself if you're going to create a large structure and I, I need to just keep an open mind because this is huge it's enormous but the point is if you're going to create panels ceiling panels roof panels uh, columns you know whatever it is i know from my, my my yacht building experience that if you make everything curved it takes a lot more time and it's a lot more expensive that's the, our perception on earth if you think of about a yacht, most you know, beautiful sailboat, most lines, if not all lines, are curved. Even the lines that look straight, their intersections are curved because you have camber, you have shear, you have um, you know, tumble home, you have all these different features that make up the beauty of this slippery, shiny, curved vessel of the hull I'm talking about mainly. So the craftsmanship and the close fitting comes from careful attention. Now, if you're going to have to do that on a gigantic scale, you know, I, I do question what is the manufacturing process? <laughs> uh, on Mars, would it also be easier to create flat, straight material, building blocks, let's say, or do we not care? Can we, can we somehow manifest panels, shapes, can we 3D print them? Um, you know, I'm just, 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 again, throwing it out there. Brainstorm. Well, can we build them in a vacuum, atom by atom, with nanotechnology? Or even make the nanobots building blocks themselves, so they just go and park themselves mm -hmm. next to their friends, and then that's it. Mm -hmm. Possibly. Possibly. No, that, well, Tim, if we go to your number three, I think I can visualize that sitting flat. You know, if okay. that was the framework for a dome, just picture it flat. Now you reach down, you pick it up from the uh, middle, and you just unfold it like a Japanese lantern. Oh. And that's your structure. And I, uh, from a construction standpoint, everything could be done at ground level. Then you raise it up, and then you construct the dome over it. Okay. So this, this is, again, last, last week I was talking in the most simplest. I said I took the most obvious and easy uh, geometrical form. Now this week I am, I've been exploring something which for us is far more, it's actually a very simple 
it's a simple uh, form to create once you do the legwork and you set up the geometry accordingly. All these are as a series of um, data points, which when you thread a, uh, a curve or a line through it, um, and then you extrude um, or sweep, you know, a, 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 let's say a circular section like I have in this particular case, it creates a, a geometrical and regular spiral. And these set of rings and their relationship to each other, each ring is, is continuous, it never ends. And each ring, um, I think, is also makes a very beautiful shape. It's, it's a toroidal shape. And Richard, I think what could be interesting about this is that from the research I've done previously on toroidal shapes, is that this could potentially uh, either be used as a transmitter or a receiver <laughs> for energy. You're reading my mind. It's, it's torsion physics that you live in. Exactly. Why not? Why not? Well, the Egyptians did it with clunky pyramids. This is so elegant. This is so exquisitely elegant. And it matches what we're seeing, which is elegance in ruin after however many hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of years. So, well, thank you. And I, I, I love the shape. It's something I keep looking at. And it's something I'd, I'd like to make. I have no idea what I would make it into, maybe a fruit bowl or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but... But I'd like to I'd like to have it created here. I'd like to have it as, as an object. I think I like the shadows that come off. That's why I showed on the the side, the top view, and, and the perspective view. I, I left the the shadows on. I mean, I know it's a little bit complicated because again, I'm not going to color material yet. But the shadows, I think, are beautiful. And it's the way like, that light it's, like, it's almost like two interwoven slinkies. That, as Ron said, you just lift up into the third dimension. And bingo, there you have your substrate for your dome. Well, yes. And the thing is that if there was a way of locking it off when it's up, then it could potentially support itself, which I think is very interesting. So it is actually like a monitor. Because the forces go round and round yeah. and round and come out here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, just articulate it. Just take one long straight piece of uh, material you just add you build it by using reasonably sized sections uh that you know articulate a little bit and um i'm trying like you would snap it would snap into position when it was all pulled up they would all lock snap into a lock position that's that's fairly simple engineering i i you can be the foreman okay ron i love that you could admire be the foreman guys just snap it into oh. place it's just oh. simple engineering you know <laughs> <laughs> why does this, well, why, yeah, that's good. That, yeah, that's but, good but, boss but, behavior. But, I don't care. Get it done. But Ron, <laughs> Ron, Ron, this yeah. gets back to Archimedes. Yeah. Where do you stand to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Well, you need a little helicopter. That's what they're, they're practicing with. Very with, funny. Um, ingenuity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I assume they had some way to lift it. Well, you could lift it from the ground. Just crank it up. You know, just to, just you got a post, an extendable post, and you just you just crank away on it. Okay, but I mean, my my point, Ron, is how far yeah. how how far do we inhibit ourselves by you know just physics? Because if this is a torsion 
toroidal torsion physics, you know, yeah. uh, spiral cage, then why does it not lift itself up? Well, why remember, it we, we have control of gravity. Look at Lee Scalman, what he did with Coral yeah. Castle. So, yeah, these guys had control of the physics, control of gravity, control of life itself. And they were artists in elegance with the universe. I mean, this is not trivial, Tim. Not trivial at all. And guys, we have, we're about to spiral out into a break. I was just going to say, there's a break coming up. My guests this morning are nautical engineers and generalists and artists and um, arcology experts. I'm talking about Bob Harrison. As well as fine artists and electronic engineers and a cast of thousands. If you're approaching a generalist problem, you have to assemble a team of generalists to solve the problem. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return to Mars following these messages. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the last half hour of The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition. We're talking about how do you build a 30-mile-wide dome on the planet Mars, not only with available technology, but with a technology which is just slightly beyond what uh, is being publicly admitted. I mean, if you're a student of any of the black ops programs or the work of people like uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette or other colleagues uh, around the world, you know that all these secrets of torsion field physics, unlimited energy, control of gravity, the construction of spacecraft miles wide, it's all, it's all out there. It's all really real. It's real science, real engineering. 
we're just not supposed to know. Like so many other things we're not supposed to know. Like our relationship to Mars. So back to our designer, Tim, uh, where you want to take us next? Well, I'm, I'm still enjoying this, the shape of this, this structure. I mean, I, I think that if we look at the, you know, past the architecture, what do people need when they live inside or around a piece of architecture? They need, you know, the infrastructure, they need heating or cooling, they need air possibly, or air, air cleaning. I mean, that, that's basic ventilation, should we say. Let's not even go into the atmosphere right now, but even in a public building like a cinema, you need so many air changes per minute. Otherwise, people, you know, it, it, it smells of popcorn and uh, people sort of grow faint because the oxygen is used up. So even on Earth, we clean the air, so we need ventilation. Now, what, what I'm thinking is that if, again, if we go into propose a structure of this type, then presumably this, this structural spiral, never-ending spiral, could provide the infrastructure for everything. So we have, you know, if we're thinking in, in sort of earthly ways, we have electrics, we have plumbing, we have ventilation ducts, we have, you know, these things could be easily large enough to even possibly put a, uh, dare I say it, a monorail in it. You know, I mean, how far do we want to go with this? How, how, how blue is the sky above? So I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm brainstorming um, each week a different approach just to sort of say, how would I solve it this way? And part of it is intuitive, part of it is curiosity, and part of it is, you know, feet on the ground. Is this going to work? Is this going to uh, find a creative solution for what we're trying to do here? Um, so I would like to propose, I, I, I make another study for another future show. I have another, I have many ideas actually, but I have one specific idea in, in mind. And, you know, I'm also very keen to involve you guys to, as I said from the beginning, is to involve you and to hear your ideas and to include your ideas. You know, I'm, if you say, I think that that's not going to work, it's not going to fly, or did you think of this, or, you know, uh, and also from our listeners, if our listeners wish to, you know, have a brainwave of an idea, why not message us and let us know and say, what's like this? And I'm not saying I can create models for everything that everybody writes in to do, but, you know, we're at a, a a significant point milestone in history where it would be really, really wonderful if we could solve this and actually move forward, um, join the dots until we actually have feet on the ground and real photographs and, you know, independent photographs, what I mean as opposed to real mm. photographs, independent photographs taken from, from Mars. Mm. Well, Tim, on, right on cue, uh, a listener who's listening right in the moment uh, if I may read this on air, Richard? Yeah, by all means. Image 12. Zoom in, see a shadow line from top of mountain down. This could be a ring shadow Timothy was speaking about. Hope you get this during the show, AJ. Hmm. Um, I think, I, yes. Yeah, I think, AJ, Ron and I have discussed this at length. I think that, that little conical thingy is actually a mini arcology. There's a collapsed side, which is on the side facing us. Uh, I have a, uh, a, a, a rendition where I've been able to bring out the structural detail of the collapse so you can see the cubicle architecture inside. 
So it's not a mountain. It's not a cinder cone. And that crack, I don't think, is a shadow of the dome. I think it's the actual physical crack in the structure, which is falling apart. And mountains don't fall apart because they're solid. But if you have something which is hollow and has numerous little cubicles inside and you get a, a um, uh, uh, what would I call that, a, well, a, a, a tear going, like, you know, metal fatigue where you get wings that come off airplanes because, you know, the metal literally breaks apart like a, like a tear in a fabric. I think mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing. I don't think... Although it was a very good proposition, again, the test is we've seen this other places with things at, at the Curiosity site, Gale Crater, where one half of the structure has literally slid and is gone, like you'd taken a knife and cut it. There's one particular structure. Ron, you know the one I mean, right? Yes. So I think that's what we're seeing, but it's a good try and keep at it because the more ideas, the better, and it's very easy to contact the show. In the upper left-hand corner, there's a contact us, and I don't know where it is on smartphones, but it's, 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 it's present. It says clearly contact us, send us your ideas. Let me venture an idea that I was kind of proposing in a weird way that didn't, I guess, communicate before. If you look at number 11, okay, Tim, mm-hmm. look at my number 11, blow it up. So it's full screen. Yes. You see that series of concentric ovals. Forget the details. Yes. Forget the because that's that's uh, what Holger was talking about. The light levels in the camera are digitizing, so you get steps. Mm-hmm. But look at the general luminosity. I think that is scattering in the dome, seen from inside. Which, if we could find a program to reconstruct a scattering translucent medium that is telling us about the overall structure of the dome itself. In other words, form follows function, light scattering follows construction topology. I understand what you're saying, Richard, but from my point of view, and I can only offer you my my, my opinion about this, the shape of the structure also defines the scatter. So that's example, what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, but you're saying the other way around. I'm, 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 I'm no, I'm saying we can, we, we can back engineer the structure from the scatter. Okay, well, I don't know what software hmm. could analyze this and define the, uh, the structure from it. My, 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 my idea is to create a model with a known structure made from the other points, the, the other dots that I'm connecting. Right. And then, then to go inside and give a certain refractive index to the material of the canopy and to render it and to match that to see if we're getting similar effects. We're, we're, we're talking the same thing. We're, we're actually just talking past each other, which I tend to do a lot these days. <clears throat> so never mind. Okay. So <laughs> no, we're, we are, we are saying exactly the same thing. I just don't know whether Da Vinci is sophisticated enough because in addition to refraction, remember you wouldn't be seeing that glow unless there was scattering which means the glass has to have fractures and there have to be scattered. Go ahead. Da Vinci is a, you know, a video, video edit suite and also it has lots of goodies packed into it. What I, I'm using is a three-dimensional modeling software ah, okay. package and then I'm using a rendering package and the rendering package I can very accurately 
uh, give materials and with different refractive index and color, any color. So at the point when I believe the architecture is in place, you know, with these different studies, then absolutely we can go inside, we can set a lens, we can give a refractive index, we can give a material to the, material, uh, to the structure of what we think the canopy is. But certain factors like the thickness of the canopy and the shape of the canopy mm. will, will affect the scatter we're seeing. You know, if I make a, for example, I'm talking about the, the lighthouse photograph, you know, the photograph of that Fresnel lens, a beautiful thing. I, that's my next study, is to make a layer cake, like a 12-sided... A, a uh, Have you looked at that Czechoslovakian perch from seven miles up, 180 degrees in color, of the dome above and below Percy? I have looked at it, yes. Okay, because that to me is showing us exactly what's there. Exactly. If I might... Uh... Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, if I might shamelessly redirect people to um, the uh, number eight in um, my section. Okay. okay Ron's section, that's, number that's eight. Tell everybody how and to get there. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Under the yeah. banner on the guest page, you click on uh, fast links to Ron's items. He's the last one after Bob, that for Timothy, after me. Click on Ron. That yeah. will take you directly to his page. And, oh, my God, look at that. Holy yeah, well, look at how. Look at number eight first. It's a um, uh, that's a picture from Holden Crater. It's a reconnaissance orbiter, and that looks like structural materials made out of glass or one of something else lying around. That's mid latitude, so it's not. This is not ice formations. There's another little kick on that. The um, you'll notice there's some rather saturated colors, mostly red in certain spots. And then you look over on the left and there's that dark depression there next to one of the piles of glass. And there's a rainbow in there. The, the light is being refracted. Uh, and that's what the blow up is below. And you can see there's a lot of texture to whatever is in that dark area. And that's where it's picking up the colors, but it's picking them up from that bright yellowish spot um, just to the right of center. Are you saying and, um, number eight? Yeah. Because it's, it's not. It should be a. It's not clickable on mine. I don't know why. Nope. Uh, ES ESP zero six eight four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is not clickable. Fifteen thirty. There's, there's a no, bug. That's what I was. There's a bug in the program. Uh oh. Yeah, that's Ron, what I was afraid Ron, of. Yeah, Ron. Sorry, yes? I made a mistake. I didn't scroll down far enough. There are a few glitches here. Yeah. Okay. Well. Okay. Well, we'll tie it. Well, we'll carry it over to some other thing. But it's because uh, it has relevance to what you were just talking about. And I thought, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I was afraid of that. Uh, the um, well, I don't know if any of them are coming up then, because uh, some of them don't. I know the first one shows, but that is another subject entirely. That was from something Richard and I were talking about yesterday. <clears throat> Uh, oh yeah, let, let us let us talk about that, okay? Because this is now a close-up of what I call the Kodiak Temple, and this is yes. from I think uh, Keith Laney's processing, right? No, no, mine. Oh, it's yours. It's okay. mine. Okay. No, this is this is from one of my yeah. This is from this is uh, from we Saul all did them. Four. They all look pretty similar. Okay. Yeah. No, they don't and look similar. There are differences depending upon okay. three is real, four is you know. They only obscured what they could recognize, and they didn't recognize much. So, no, this is very impressive. Right. 
yeah, if anybody clicks on that and then looks at the uh, vertical section of the um, closest part of the Kodiak, whatchamacallit, uh, there's a face in there. You know, I'm, I'm leery about saying those. But there there's, yes, I know, but there's one very clear, big, full head looking yep. straight at us. Um, yeah, Andrew, what uh, we're talking uh, about is this this thing is a circular <clears throat> structure, an appendage to the east of the temple itself. When you look at the satellite imagery looking straight down. Right. And I noticed the other night that there appeared to be vertical panels, depending upon how you adjust the resolution so you're not lost in the noise. It's the what I call the Gigi effect. Have I been standing up too close or back too far? Right. And if you're at the right distance, you can see this thing I think was covered with huge vertical panels of artwork and there's myriad faces and other representations on this structure. It was a temple to yeah, something. Gorgeous. Yeah. It, it's very, uh, well, it reminds me of a lot of the Hindu stuff we see, the Hindu temples. But yes, it could be, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That too. Yeah. Anyway, uh, well, that wasn't the one that I wanted to throw into the conversation because, you know, we got to go with what's working. But um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, okay, we have a whole bunch of, of, of broken links there. I'm not quite sure what happened, so. Richard, uh, okay. I, I believe Kinthea has said the server crashed again. Oh, it wasn't, that's wasn't, the problem. Wasn't her, it wasn't her fault. The I server, didn't think it the was the her server fault. Got all, yeah, the server got overwhelmed almost immediately. Richard, oh. I, 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 don't mean to butt, I don't mean to butt in, but I know we're coming close to the end. But Bob wanted to review yeah. some of his material, and it's pretty amazing. Oh, by all means. Robert? Go for it. Right. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Bob, so you got to be more assertive. You know, you're in a whole bunch oh, of well, egomania. The, the conversations go flying so quickly; it's difficult to butt in. <laughs> so, uh, so if yes, if listeners go to uh, the fast links and click on Bob, get to Bob's items. So it's about this is an analysis that was inspired by those dark spots. Uh, so. Um, item one there is the image banner of the show two weeks ago with yellow arrows showing those two dark spots you were talking about early in the show. Right. And another, uh, the image in the same image, the picture below that showing two dark spots more clearly from something that uh, you um, developed from uh, the pictures. So I decided, I was interested in those dark spots. Could they be something like meteorite damage in a, in a dome? Uh, so I went to the um, Mars Perseverance website and looked for, randomly picked an image that had a, seemed to have a dark spot in it, which can be seen at, uh, in item two. And from that, uh, image I developed mm. uh, the analysis in three and four. Okay. Uh, so four two, is two is the raw frame from uh, uh, mm -hmm. Sol yeah. one, the left mass cam Z image. Okay. <laughs> and right. then, so, so we're going to three, right? Three or four. Okay. Four is a smaller version of three, okay. which might be more appropriate if people click on that. Uh, and click again to enlarge it. So you can see that I've circled the darkest spot in this uh, blotchy sky. Uh, and I could see, to, or to my eye, there seemed to be other spots 
at least two. Do you remember me telling you what I think these are? Reflections. Reflections, multiple reflections, internal geometric reflections from the layering and the structure of the upper part of the apex of the dome. Right. So, so the middle image, I just, I, you know, that is a, uh, a standard uh, contrast adjustment. Mm. I, I, ju I think I just hit auto equalize. And that didn't improve things. The, you can see that the dark spot is now dark. <laughs> can I can I interrupt again with a very important observation? Do you see what's behind your dark spot all over the frame? It looks like stars. Yes, but they're not. They're shards of glass. They're little prisms. Well, in the PNG, they are very prismatic. PNG version yeah. of the picture. And I've got two yeah. more that I found that were taken the other day. Yeah. So so um, that didn't improve things in seeing the other dark spots that I could see. Uh, so I thought I needed something that sort of macro-wise uh, leveled the contrast, but at, a, but at a local level increased it. Uh, so there's something called local equalization. Mm. So I applied that, and that came up with the dark spots that I could make out uh, showed up very well. And there were lots of circular features, lots of them uh, very close together. It looks like you're looking at an infinite two mirrors. You know, you know the infinite mirror paradox. Yep. You stand between two mirrors and you see yourself in infinity. That's what it looks like. They're all the same size. I think they're all mirrors of either one or two of these things, whatever they are. I don't think they're holes in the dome. I think they're more structured. But they look like multiple, multiple reflections of the same couple, two or three objects. Yeah. So the speckling in no, that No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't. Am, am I right, wrong, all wet, whatever? I do. Well, Possibly. I've, Possibly. I've got a slightly okay. different idea. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. So anyway, the speckling in that picture is just locally equalization brings out noise as right. well. Right, of course. Uh, so um, get out of that. Uh, number five is just an example of uh, a standard image of the face and a locally equalized version. If you click on that, you mm. see... Enlarge again. You can see that the the facial features in this jump out at you more, even though the image itself is rather brutal and crude looking, right? Uh, and a bit noisy. But but that showed that's to show that local equalization. The, the power of this technique. By the way, is that available in a commercial program? Uh, yes, it's 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 standard in the antiquated program that I use. So it, it just shows it doesn't necessarily destroy data or right. add to it. And then number six done here is I've uh, I've smoothed over, blurred the image to get rid of the speckling, the noise, and I've applied a 3D a texture effect to it to bring out all the circular objects. Mm. So lighter areas will sort of shadow will be mm. shaded to stand out and 
darker the areas will be. Sure looks like uh, an infinite mirror to me. Yeah, it looks a bit like a moon landscape, doesn't it? Uh, you know, if, you, if it was a 3D image. So, so number seven is an analogy of my other idea, which is this is a normal geodesic uh, dome which has panels, you know, it's just a thin skin. Your idea for a dome is that it's a thick dome. Uh, and so if we think 3D, then my idea Well, hang on, hang on. The reason I think it's thick at the top, Tim, pay attention, please, because with that check image, you're suspended between dome above you and dome below you and you're about six and a half miles. So I think the apex of this thing is about a mile thick. The top is seven, the bottom would be six. And so you got about a mile of structure at the apex doing whatever it is doing optically. So in seven, in analogy, it was made out of 2D panels. So with a thick dome, rather than panels, I was thinking if, Rather, if these aren't reflections, then what you could actually be seeing would be 3D bubbles that make up the uh, microstruct, you know, the, the elements, the smaller elements of the dome. Hmm. And it, so that's the idea. But anyway, it's very, it's very intriguing. You know, See, eventually know. we may know, because if Tim is successful in his reconstructions, at some point, am I right, Tim, you'll be able to take a model, put light into it, look at it from various directions, and match it to the imagery, and we'll see what, what works, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, I still have a 3D uh, scanned map from NASA um, of Curiosity. Uh, sorry, Gale Crater is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge three-dimensional file, which is the terrain there. And I'm hoping maybe somebody will do one into zero crater. And then I can actually put the actual terrain underneath the actual dome. underneath. And then I think those are called like, DTMs, Digital Terrain Models. And there's a bunch mm -hmm. of amateurs uh, in a couple of the chats that I've been following that normally have leaks. Nothing like that has come out of this mission yet and I'm very kind of curious as to why it's like there's like an iron curtain this mission is not leaking like curiosity did oh absolutely fascinating no I'm, I'm looking forward at the moment I'm absolutely exploring I'm assembling the the tools and also the the building blocks and when things start to become you know more than logical then I intend to put them together and make uh, renderings with us in there different viewpoints, different heights, different altitudes, and so on. Tim, you're a, yeah. do you have access to a 3D printer? Uh, not currently, not unless I pay oh. somebody to use one, but... Um, oh, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, there... Uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking that your stuff is, well, math-based. You know, you could just feed that into a 3D printer and have it make a toroidal, toroidal structured dome. Or a Fresnel structured dome, either one. You know, you could make one. You mean an actual tabletop model, 3D model? Yes. Yeah, yeah ex okay. exactly. All yeah. right, Bob, I didn't mean to cut you off, all right, but ideas no. tend to spill out when we see these synchronous things, so continue, please. Well, 
Yes, I've largely finished anyway, but uh, so yes, possibility. You know, I don't know. I don't know. It's creating these spots, whether it's a dome, whether it's something to do with a camera or <laughs> dust on the lens. No, 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 no. Seems no, it's, unlikely, no. but no, uh, it's not. We definitely know it's not. But the fact that it's there is, uh, you know, the, the this sort of um, visual structure of spots is there suggests that perhaps there's a real dome there. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure why it's. Don't really see it from seen from orbit. It seems to be just like a, a two-way mirror. No, 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 uh, no, no. You do see it. Let's go back to Tim. Tim, let's go back to Tim's images, which means I have to click back here. Uh, click on Tim. There we are at the top. Look at number one, Bob. Yeah. This is a black and white <clears throat> of the color Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter imagery the maps laid down by taking multiple color strips and putting them all together in a computer. And what Tim did was take out, take away the color, make it black and white. And remember last week I was so excited because you're seeing what's left of the dome, which is exactly the way I reconstructed it. The Western part has been eroded because of sand sandstorms from the Southwest and it's being progressively eaten. So a little less than half of it, is still optically there, and that's that whole white portion from the center to the edge on the right. And that's Richard, yeah, Richard, our show is ebbing away. You've got about sixty seconds. Oh my, 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 my! It's amazing how things fly when you're having fun. I'm, I'm glad someone is monitoring the time tonight. Well, guys, I guess we're going to do this all again next week because we'll have new models from Tim. We will have re results from. Oh, thank you, dear. Thank you. I could not have done without that. Okay. Um, and we'll have results from Ingenuity. And maybe we can talk next week about how do we figure out the density of the atmosphere that they're actually flying in. Anybody have a punctuating last word here? We've got about uh, 70 seconds. Yeah, I do. Uh, there's, a, there's a monstrous phenomenon about to happen. These cicadas that come out every years, these beautiful insects are about to hatch in the billions in 15 states across the United States, including Washington, D.C. And the reason why I bring it up is that it reminds me of the Ingenuity helicopter unfurling its wings oh, and then my. beginning a mating. Yep. It's amazing. Amazing. Well, everyone out there, tomorrow night we're going to be going from Jezero Crater on Mars to Giza, the Giza Plateau on Earth. And there may be surprises. So tune in. Until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep looking up.